To a very special episode of the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here, finally, after many months of waiting, to talk about Persona 5. Yes. Finally. Finally. My, the, the weird waking dream I have been a part of for <laughs> months now is finally over. The game is out. You've played it. Or I've, you've played a good chunk of it. Yep. I've, I'm deep into my second playthrough. And I can fucking, we can talk about this goddamn video game. Holy shit. All right. Uh, for those of you who are just joining us, new listeners, if there are any, uh, you should know Persona 3 and Persona 4 are our favorite video games ever. Yes. And so we were excited for Persona 5. That for, is a fair thing to say. For pretty much the lifespan of this podcast, which is in its sixth year. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, so we have been very much looking forward to this. Last year, Sean realized... Hey, I speak Japanese. Yeah. Fuck it. I'm just going to play it in Japanese. So you played Persona 5 back then. Yes. And only now can I truly appreciate the hell you have been through not getting to talk about this game with anyone. Right. Like, even I think more so than other Persona games, there's stuff about this one that you're like, I need to tell people about this because holy shit. It's like, I I am, so just so you guys know, I am 31 hours in. That's how much I've put in in the first week. I did a quick calculation on that. That's over like 25% of the hours since the game came out. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking waking and sleeping. Yeah, this, <laughs> it's, 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 it is a disturbing amount of time. It's for a disturbing sure. amount of time. Uh, and even 31 hours in, things will still be happening and being unveiled where your jaw just drops yeah. at like, can they do that? Are they doing that? Oh my god, they did that. This game's fucking crazy. Yeah, and and in my experience, that continued till literally the very end of the game. Like, it is a game that is so chock full of surprises that it's yeah, you, it, it's something you don't necessarily understand how much you appreciate about something. Its ability to surprise you until you play something like Persona Five, and literally like every other hour, you're like, "Holy shit, they're doing that!" Like they do that in this game. Yeah, it is incredible. We will take a deep dive, just so you guys know how these podcasts are going to work going forward. Yeah. Persona 5 is going to be a topic every week for the foreseeable future, for a little while here. Um, we're going to basically pick a point to where I've played, since I'm the one new to the game here. Yeah. And we'll say, we're going to do basically a spoiler cast on all of the stuff up to that point, And we will let you know today's episode. Um, we will probably do some non-spoiler stuff, of course. But then we'll really get into it. And we will talk about stuff up to the end of the second palace. Or if you want to think of like the second story arc in the game. Yeah. So we will not get into anything uh, too much beyond there. Some things it's hard to say. Like, you know, where do you see certain social links? Yeah. And, you know. But, but like, there's a good, like, you could kind of contain the social links you'd be able sure. to see in that, that time period. Absolutely. So... That's probably, you know, 20 to 25 hours for most people playing the game. And uh, yeah, yeah, I just finished it and my second playthrough, mine, I'm at about 19 hours in. And that's probably a little bit Fast. accelerated because I can get through the dungeons faster than most people because I've seen them. Right. Um, so yeah, that's what we're going to do. And I have played further than that. I'm almost done with the third palace and story arc, but we're not going to touch on that. Because we don't want to spoil too much. And I understand most people, even if they love Persona, might not have played 31 hours of it week. No, I think you might be playing through the game faster than I was. Like, even, like, even, like, like, 
ignoring how much more time it may have taken me because I was playing it in a, like not my native yeah. language. Like even then, I think like just in terms of raw hour count, you 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 beat me in that regard. It's uh, it's really good, Sean. Yeah, it's a, I have been sitting here telling you that for since October. <laughs> Since, like, I, October 6th, I think, is when I bought I the game. I didn't disbelieve you, of course. Obviously, I knew the game was going to be great. But there is a quality to this game where I don't think literally any amount of hype can prepare you for what this game does. Yeah. And, yeah. And, if you look, if you have not played it yet and you're not sure, just fucking play it. Don't listen to our podcast until you have because you need to experience this for yourself. Yeah. And holy crap. So we're going to put Persona 5 on the table for a minute and do some news. Although, speaking of Persona 5 on the table, yeah. do you want to talk about the special edition of the game? Yeah, sure. We could we get into that right now. So a little, like a, a couple of minutes before we started recording this podcast, I tweeted out a picture <laughs> on my Twitter account of I have modified our normal podcast table with the, the accoutrement that comes with the Take Your Heart edition of Persona 5, which is their like super mega special edition of the game. Which doesn't come with anything like it's not like a hundred and thirty dollars. It's not like you know it's not night vision goggles for Modern Warfare Two kind of swag. But it is a very nice version of the game that comes with a really nice sort of like big case that comes with all the stuff. That it comes with an art book that's sort of a selection of a lot of the art from the game that I like a lot. It comes with a soundtrack disc that is basically music from the first five or six hours of the game. Sort of select songs from that section of the game. There's a couple of, like, you know, the main battle theme is on there, the opening theme's on there. Like the most basic music you want. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, it's sort of your primer for, obviously, like, the full soundtrack is much bigger, which I also have on the table. (laughs) It did not come with... Uh, the this edition of the game, but since I had the official soundtrack, I might as well put it on our little uh, shrine we have here. So then it also comes with a bag that is the Shujin Academy school bag. It's like it's a nice little bag, and then it also comes with the thing that I actually, honestly, since I already bought the soundtrack, I most wanted from it was the Morgana plushie. And so we have the Morgana plushie. Morgana is my favorite character in this game. Like Morgana is one of my favorite characters in anything. Yeah, in anything. Like it didn't. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's awesome, and then also it's a it comes with uh, a really fantastic steelbook case. Yeah, that is something that uh, a like smaller limited edition, like a steelbook version, is also available for people who maybe have bought that, and it's the same from that version. But it is looks really good. It's just this really nice. Obviously, like the persona art is fantastic, and it's just all the cast sort of standing in the street with with the Tokyo skyline behind them, just walking, striding purposefully toward the camera, basically. Yeah. So yeah, I it's a really really nice looking set. It doesn't have like I I realized when I got it that me buying the official soundtrack sort of cut out part of the value of it for me personally, and I'm probably going to end up getting a Persona 5 art book at some point anyways because I got yes. the 3 and 4 ones, but like even ignoring that like I'm going to spend more money for stuff that's going to be better versions of what came with this, like I am very happy with with what oh, I got. even if you ignore that, and the art book, whether or not, I mean, there is, uh, Prima Games just announced they're publishing the art book for this in June here in the United States. Yeah. And I've already got it on pre-order, and boy, howdy, can I not wait for that. It's 500 pages, Sean. Yeah. It's insane. It's, there's a lot of art in this yes. game. I mean, especially when you think about all, like, the character art that they have of, like, the character portrait cut-ins that come in that yeah. are all unique art. They basically, like, 
probably tripled or quadrupled the amount of character portraits in the game just by doing that. Oh, yeah. Uh, but what I was going to say is that even knowing there's another one coming down the line, the one they gave you with this is surprisingly nice. Like, it is yeah. a nice hardcover book. It's like, you know, 50, 60 pages, and all the art in there is really nice. And it's the kind of stuff you kind of almost want on hand while you're playing the game of like, oh, I just met this character. Let's say I met Yusuke. That's a pretty early yeah. character in the game. And I kind of look up the Yusuke pages, and it's just cool to see that. Yeah. So it's really neat. And it also has the benefit of not being spoilery. You know, they're not, they don't have art of like, here's the end of the game. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which the full art book you would assume will have. Yes. Yeah, so it's really nice. And then all the other stuff, just like, even just the most basic stuff, like the box it comes in is so fucking nice. Mm-hmm. It like magnetically clasps and everything. And that Shujin Academy bag, I'm going to have to find some use for it because it's awesome. Yeah. And I'm going to have to get a cat and just yeah. put the cat in the bag and see if that works like it does in the game. Pretty much. Because that's the thing. The Shujin Academy bag is in like every frame of this game. Uh-huh. I guess except when you're in a dungeon. But other than that, like the protagonist has his bag on him all the time. And most of the time Morgana is in that bag. Yes. And the animations on that are incredible. So... Yeah, this is... Uh, I don't think you can get this now, because I think it's sold out. But yeah. if you happen upon it, I think the list price for this was 90 bucks, Which, for everything they gave you, that's a crazy good deal for a premium edition. Yeah, game. yeah, I'm very happy with it. And it's just, it's nice to sort of commemorate, for us, our recording of these podcasts. <laughs> yes, very much so. Because, you know, if we ever stop being enthusiastic for a second, you just look at any one piece of the art in front of you and be like, right, this is the most stylish video game ever made. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's talk about that for a minute. Yeah. Yeah. So that's some basic intro into uh, getting Persona 5. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's talk about a couple pieces of news. Okay. Well, really what quick. other stuff is going on in the world that's not Persona, Jonathan? Well, I'll say there's like this podcast is going to be mostly Persona because our stuff would be Persona. Our other stuff would be, you know, that's all we're doing right now. Yeah. But let's do a couple pieces of news. Okay. Uh, here's a game that is not as universally loved as Persona 5. And that is Mass Effect Andromeda. Yeah. Which had its first update this week and also had, uh, you know, some announcements from the developers about their plan for the game. And, you know, on one hand, kudos to everyone on the team for being this transparent about the process and getting stuff out. And that first patch did not necessarily completely fix the facial animation issue, but it definitely improved it substantially, and that's great. The problem with this kind of thing is... A lot of people already bought the game. Yeah. A lot of people already finished the game. Yes. Most of those fixes will not affect them unless they want to play the game again, which they might not want to. And, you know, I completely agree with the thought I've seen out on the internet, which is they basically released an early access game and asked you to pay 60 bucks for it because... Well, no. Most of the... The, the, the deluxe edition was the default. They asked you to pay 70 to 80 bucks for it. And... Yeah, it's there's this is no different than when you look at like a list of what they need to fix for an early access game. It's the same kind of fundamental things. And you know, I, I tweeted this, it's something I was I'm so happy about with Persona. It's one of the reasons I loved Breath of the Wild. Those games just came out done. Yeah. You just put it in and you fucking played it. You know? And I I Andromeda is it feels like a relic to me of the earlier part of this generation where every other game was broken. You know, the early games, this like it's Assassin's Creed Unity yeah. or the Master Chief Collection or something like that. And it's weird that we're still dealing with that. Is Hopefully this is like the last major game that goes through that, but I don't know. It's a weird scenario. Yeah, I, I think that there is something to consider with, like, you know, games have released in, like, busted, fucked up forms for as long as video games have been a thing. Like, that's not necessarily new just because we have... The ability to patch things in really big, like, comprehensive ways. It happens a lot more. Maybe. Like, it's... I mean, it's hard to know for sure because there's no... I mean, 
nobody's like performing studies on it. There's no sort of like yeah. a f- like objective way to sort of qualify that stuff. But I mean, you know, I remember buying Knights of the Old Republic two in two thousand four and finishing that game. That game does not have an ending. Like the ending of that game is. Boop, but for a game of does, but for a game of that stature, isn't like isn't Knights that of the Old Republic two? Yes. Yeah, sequel to yeah. one of the yeah, the most acclaimed RPGs of all time. That was a hell of a lot rarer back then than it is now. I kind would say. of, don't you think? How often on like. The Super NES or, you know, comparable systems did, obviously, like, shitty third-party things. That's a different thing. A giant flagship title like this and some of the other ones we've seen this generation. How often did that really happen? I mean, it's hard to say just because I I wasn't playing games as actively back then. But then also it is important to consider that, like, those games are vastly less complicated than, like, these are games that are being made by teams of several hundred people, you know? So it's like, I think there is, like... Something to keep in mind about, like, every video game comes in super hot. Like, most video games, like Breath of the Wild, or most video games are not like Breath of the Wild or Persona 5, where they have the pedigree and sort of trust from their publisher, and the publisher has enough sort of financial leeway to say, these games come out whenever. Like, the, the only thing that was, like, the pressure on Breath of the Wild was when the Switch date, they, like, Nintendo decided internally on whenever the Switch is going to come out, that was when, okay, like, Breath of the Wild has to come out from here. And they have been worried they had delayed that game multiple times yeah. by that point. Same with Persona 5. So it's like, most games do not have the luxury to be able to do that. And I think... Saying that like those games just come out done feels that way just from our perspective of it feels good like, like from we feel like okay yeah like both of those games or I guess Persona Five I can't actually really think of many technical issues but Breath of the Wild had frame rate issues it had like texture sure. popping issues it had stuff like that I don't think that game felt unfinished but like no game is done like or no piece of art is ever done like anything can always be added to or edited or something can be done to it and having living in this sort of modern age where we can patch things it's strange to sort of where that line has been blurred so much about well you know yeah like we can fix these problems post-release but there are games that have had games have always had issues and in the past would those games have been pushed back or would they have these patches put out like post-release to fix those issues or would they have been released earlier knowing that patches could have come out to fix even more severe issues and that's the kind of stuff I think it's hard for people to say this game is done and like it's good and it's done and like it's perfect well we're not talking about a game that wasn't perfect we're talking about a game with fundamental like there were sections of that game in, in like the day one version I played that were literally unplayable yeah, I no, mean, like, some games, like, yeah, like, it obviously came in really buggy and really hot and fucked up and, and I, got bad reviews think, because of it. I think that's a significantly different thing. In a game of, you know, the stature of a Mass Effect Andromeda yeah. coming out like that, that just didn't happen when we were kids. I mean, it probably would have level. been canceled or yeah. something like that. Yeah, I mean, we say no piece of art is ever done, but you don't expect this of movies or books or... Other thing, or frankly, I mean, you don't expect it, but it happens. Like, like, like you get, like, I mean, you know, you get a Batman v Superman or a Suicide sure. Squad. Yeah, but yeah, you. But isn't this kind of a different thing on that? Because that's just a bad. That's just a shit. There's a difference between just a shitty movie and something that has promise that is broken. And and I think Mass Effect Andromeda has bigger underlying issues to it. But I also know there seem to be a lot of people who are pushing through it and enjoying certain things about it. Right. And it's too bad for them that there are, you know, the best way to play that game clearly is going to be wait six months to a year yeah. and buy it for 20 bucks and maybe it'll be patched by then to be playable, you know? 
It's a it's a different thing, but I mean, but most games you can say that for. Like Bloodborne had a patch about like a two months after it came out that drastically reduced the loading times of that game, which is a significant change to a game that was already good. But, but that's could the, have been. But that's the difference. Bloodborne, a loading time issue is annoying. It's not game breaking. The things that make Bloodborne great were enjoyable on day one, and they were enjoyable two years later. But, I mean, that, that depends on your perspective. Like you said, there are lots of people that are playing Mass Effect Andromeda that are more or less fine with it. That, like, obviously, like, technical issues are technical issues, but people have different tolerances for that level of stuff. There are absolutely people who were playing Bloodborne when it came out that if those load times had been shorter, they would have stuck with the game. But because they were as long as they are, yeah. you die as frequently as you do in that game, they just stopped playing that game. Okay. Like, that's, I think that's kind of my point is that, like, it's hard to sort of d- draw this, like, distinct definition between, like, oh, like, this game released totally unfinished and is just has to, and, like, it has to be fixed with patches afterwards when that entirely depends on your perspective on the quality of the game when it comes out. Because every game has issues and it's just what issues are the things that bother you so much that you can't stand it. But I, I, just, I just think we're talking about... I think we're having like two different conversations. Because there's games that come out and have issues and they go in and patch them and that's great that we have that. And then there's games that feel like, you know, so severely compromised that you don't want to play it at launch. But that's, what I'm saying is, if, like, there are people who don't feel like it is so severely compromised that they don't want to play it at launch. That, like, some people feel that way, other people don't because okay. they have different tolerances and, like, different preferences. Is it, is it unreasonable to say... The game I'm paying $60 for, I just want to feel like I put it in and it's a, a playable, good version of itself. I mean, yeah, that's that's what you ideally would want. Yes, so what? I don't know what's unreasonable in my position on that. I'm, I, what I'm saying is that, like, it's not to see, like, there's a larger, like, argument that is happening right now that has been happening for a couple of years that I think it's very easy to sort of get into, fall into this hole where you're treating the game like it, like... That the technical issues and or whatever issues you're having with it are just like these purely objective things and that like, no, like this is just like, it is unfinished. It is like, and it is just that way. And it's like, it should be better. And if like in the past, it maybe would have come out and because patching didn't exist or something like that, it would not have come out in the state because video games didn't come out in that state. And those kinds of arguments, I think, feel sometimes kind of short-sighted to me and like don't see the full picture about like how these games are made. How like how long and how hard and how much money it takes to make it and how most games like have those issues and that you can it just depends on how severely those issues affect your enjoyment of the game. But clearly, this affects a lot of people's enjoyment of this particular. I mean, I don't know that because I don't know what the larger sort of public reception is to it as opposed to the critical reception of the game, right? I guess I there are le- like the, some of the most popular games on Steam that have like millions and millions of players are, is stuff like Ark Survival Evolved that are like you know not optimized at all. They're just like they run like complete shit. Ark Survival Evolved clearly pitches itself as early access. Yeah, and it has been pitching itself as early access for years. But... Sure, but that's at least on the game page. It will tell you those things. It is not that I do think there is a difference here. I. I... I'm I'm sick of seeing this. I, I think it's it's becoming less and less, and that's great. I think as the generation goes along, but I think what it is is it's part of a larger conversation in video games where I completely understand and respect the difficulty that goes into making these games. That is not my point here at all. But I do think we are in an era where the technological limits are so high, like you know, like there's so little you can't do in certain areas that you know we're making bigger and bigger games, and it takes longer and longer to make them. And I think that is a bubble that is set to burst very soon if something if, if there's not a way around that, which is that 
you know, you could have, like, you know, Naughty Dog made a game every two years yeah. in the time of the PS3. You know, yeah. they had, you know, Uncharted, Uncharted 2, Uncharted 3, Last of Us, and then, of course, Uncharted 4 takes a lot longer. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, except, and, and I'm talking about, this is, a, this is like a best-case scenario, because Naughty Dog makes, you know, th- games we would call colloquially finished, you know? Yeah. And, but they, you know... They're able to do that at a relatively quick pace. That's not going to be the case this generation. And at a certain point, there's just going to be an issue of how many games of that size can feasibly come out in a state that people are happy with. And if that's and if you can't get them to that state, then there's going to be a lot of games, and we already have seen this, that probably needed another year or two in the oven and are going to come out like that. And one way or another, if there's just not enough out there on that scale or we're not supplementing it with other things, then that's going to be a bubble that bursts. Or you keep pushing games out faster than it is tenable for people to make them. And just just the bubble of people wanting to work on games because you know crunch gets so inhumane yeah. at certain points. So I do think it's systemic of larger issues in the industry, and I do think that's where the frustration comes from for a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, I would really... Because, like, this has been happening for a couple of years now, and I really would like, like, there to be, like, like, like a journalist or someone that has the qualifications to go and actually, like, research this subject, because I haven't seen anything like that, and, like, we've having, like, the larger game, like, critical audience has been having this argument, like, sort of internally for, since, probably since, like, around 2014, which is that's when, like, the Assassin's Creed Unity, Halo Master Chief Collection, all that stuff happened, and it was, like, I feel like there's no actual research done to see, like, well, like, is this, are, like, games coming out more broken more frequently, like, or is that just our perception of things? Because I've, like, as someone who's been following games pretty closely for a long time now, like, it, it, it doesn't feel like that has actually changed that much. Like, you think about, like, I don't know, like, the PS3 version of Skyrim that had the memory leak issue on its saves where it was just completely fucked if you played that game for too long. Like, that stuff has just been always happening. Or, like, Too Human was a game that, that I got at launch and was just totally fucked in a lot of technical ways. Like, that's just feels like it has always been a thing that has been going on constantly. Yeah. I just remember the Skyrim thing feeling like more of an outlier. Because there is also, I think, a difference between a Skyrim and a Too Human in terms of the level they're coming out at. And, and sure. you know, public perception and hype and those sorts of things. Sure. So, but yeah, I mean, and, but I, hey, the Bethesda games are also a good example of that. That Skyrim was broken on one platform or had significant issues that hurt people from playing it. And Fallout 4 was not broken but had significant issues that were enough to, I, I know, definitely hurt some people's opinion of it on... You know the PS4 and Xbox One, where you you look at it and you go, "Hey, this this feels like it should you know work better than this." Sure, I and mean, some of but that like just, Oblivion to... was like that, and Morrowind was like sure. that, at least on the original Xbox. Like their games have always been like that. Sure, but I it's also it's just, but it is it's part of this larger scaling issue where it becomes part of a trend when there's more and more of that out there. Sure, maybe. Like I'm just saying, like again, like there, it's when you're trying to push that threshold of like what the technology can reasonably do. You're like the games are always going to come in hot and they're always going to come in messy. This is like you go back, like you know, Elder Scrolls Arena ran like shit on computers at the yeah. time and had like technical issues and bugs because it's like their games have always had those issues. Yeah. Well, we're getting very far afield yeah. here. I just I, I find it frustrating. That's all. And you know, no, yeah, it's you frustrating because you ideally you want like all like games to come out like perfect, but, but they I, never I, do. Yeah. Well, again, we're talking about it pretty far away from perfect. So yeah. that's that's reframing the conversation. Because, but here's what I was gonna say. You know who else is frustrated with this? The people at Bioware who made the game. No, you know yeah, what? they're probably the most frustrated with it. And yeah. that is that is an issue here. That is part of that larger discussion of if you know we cannot make the games at the scale people are trying to make games 
on the timetable we used to make games. That's just not the equation has changed clearly. If you well, look I, at the I, amount I, of time, although it, if you have like more people working on the game, does that compensate for the amount of time, like in terms of like the years versus like actual man hours? I I probably not because I think if you ask the staffs of Assassin's Creed Unity or Mass Effect Andromeda or you know one of the other games we could name with this, I or or games that. Aren't don't feel technically broken, but clearly were unfinished, like Metal Gear Solid Five or Halo Five. Sure, I yeah. think the teams were plenty big for those games. I don't think that's the issue. I, I do think there is something where you know, like the pe- the good people at three four three who are very talented probably hit a point in their development of Halo Five where they're like, "Fuck, we just there's no world in which we don't have to release this this year. We're gonna have to cut ninety nine percent of the story out of this game." I mean, that's and, what they did with Halo Two. Yeah, and cobble the f- this thing the fuck together. So yeah. Halo Two. Yeah, hey, hey, Halo Two has a glow around it where it functions as a game in parts, at least. But yeah. sure, but but I mean, like the the limited the no. collector's edition of that game came with a documentary sure, sure. that yeah, like, yeah, yeah. like, but like, I think development issues I, are development issues. And yes, like, but I think that's cut. but I think that's on a spectrum. I think it's on a spectrum where I think that's becoming uh, uh, an issue that is more and more normal as the years go by. And I do think there are people looking into this. Uh, Jason Schreer at Kotaku has that book coming out in yeah. September where he. Looked at six Blood, games. Sweat, and Pixels. Blood, Sweat, and Pixels. And it looks really interesting because it is about the development of six games that were sort of at varying degrees of finishedness, for lack of a better term. You know, one of the games in there is Destiny, yeah. which famously had a troubled production. And it's turned out okay for them. Yeah. Although there's certainly, I'm sure everyone there would wish they, they kind of had that together earlier on because that wouldn't make the audience seem as insular as it is by now. But yeah, that's, you know, I, I'm going to be interested to see, you know, what we learned from that. Yeah. But yeah. I guess, like, the main sentiment I want to express is just to kind of push back against a bit against, like, the larger narrative that has been happening for a while, that, like, this is getting worse. That's, like, it might be getting worse, but I feel like the way that people are talking about it feels like... It just feels worse because you got burned by buying this game. It's like, this has always been happening. Like, it's it's not a new issue. It's an issue that is, like... That maybe is being exacerbated by like expanding budgets and scales of games, but I do think it's being exacerbated. I also think it's possible Mass Effect Andromeda is a holdover from an earlier part of this generation because we are seeing it less and less. Yeah. I mean, it's also like because we talked about a lot on this podcast about how like it really felt like that game was just getting pushed out because they didn't have any marketing, and yeah. then it came out in late March, which is like the end of the financial quarter. So like that that feels like just an issue where. EA just said, fuck it, like, we just have to put this game out. Like, we've been dumping money into the production of this game for years. Yeah, and, and I'm, I, I think it could go either way. I think this could be part of a growing exacerbation of that problem, because I do think, uh, my premise would be, I do think this is happening more with higher-profile games than it did in the past. But I, I also think it's possible, like I said, this is maybe a vestige of something that was going on earlier in this generation, because if you look at the general trend, developers are clearly more willing to... Uh, delay their games than they were in the first, second, or third years of the PS4 and Xbox One. You know, like, right. like, just look no further than Ubisoft saying Assassin's Creed's taken a year off. That's kind of that was kind of stunning when it happened of them to finally admit that they had to do that. Yeah, you know, and that is, you know, or um, Activision adding a third developer for Call of Duty. There are clearly efforts in the industry to ramp up so that this scale can be met. But I think there are still at least holdovers from that. And I hope they're just holdovers and not part of that larger trend. But we'll see. That's all. Okay. Yeah. Um, all right. Other shenanigans. Mini, one rant over. Next. So this is Persona 5 related. Okay. Not has, this has absolutely nothing to do with the quality of the game. No. But for some reason, Atlas slash Sega in Japan, and we don't really know what side of the corporate equation that is, 
um, has completely disabled sharing on Persona 5 for the PS4. So you cannot take screenshots. You cannot take... The share button just doesn't work. Yeah. It, at least on my PS4, pops up a super annoying message every time I launch the game, which is gameplay recording paused. And yep. Does it do that on yours too? Yeah. For me, the one that is more annoying is... Whenever you get a trophy, the message pops off, up yeah. that says, oh, we can't take a screenshot of this, yeah. which is like, that's a, even though I have all these trophies of the Japanese version anyways, like, it is still a weirdly deflating thing to happen. It's like, yeah, I got a yeah. trophy. Oh, we, you can't take a screenshot. It's like, I didn't really need that screenshot, but it's still annoying that you just told me you can't take yeah, it. Yeah, and I, t- I had to turn the screenshot feature off for that because I, I found it so annoying. Um, so they've done that, and then in addition to that, they have issued very uh, strict and what we might call draconian guidelines for streamers who want to stream Persona 5, yeah. which, you know, uh, feels uh, a bit like shooting yourself in the foot at the moment when Persona is on a bigger global stage than it literally has ever been, yeah. and this is a game that I would not necessarily want to stream or watch a stream of, but I totally understand that the audience would be there to do that, and a lot of people would probably watch and then buy the game because like that looks really cool, and it's you know it's free marketing for these guys, yeah. and like this is like the Nintendo policy on streaming from a few years ago on steroids. Yeah, it's weird. It, like even Nintendo has largely moved past this in a lot of different ways. Like you know, although they still don't let people make money on YouTube videos yes, and Nintendo yes. games. Yeah, yeah. Well, is, they they there's a there's a policy web you can go into. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But like there is, it is definitely is like the sort of Japanese company attitude that they have that that does like I it just feels like a complete misreading of the landscape. Like it feels like it's something that an American game company maybe would have said in like 2009 or 2010 yeah. of making this argument of oh like we are this very heavily story based video game and so if like the story is out there people will just watch our game and won't buy the game which like maybe there are going to be some people who will do that like i have done that with some games like i i watched like all the story mode of injustice gods among us the dc fighting game on youtube just cuz i kind of wanted to see it and then i was like oh, okay i because i also don't i was never going to buy that you were game never gonna i buy don't that like game, fighting yeah. games and i don't like mortal kombat style fighting games specifically but like so like but maybe you know maybe there was some world where i was going to go out and just buy injustice because i so desperately needed to see what weird fucking dumb story was in that game and because i couldn't get it on youtube i would have had to go buy it but like and so maybe they would have lost that one sale cuz i watched it on youtube but obviously Everyone knows there are like I've bought God knows how many games because I've seen YouTube videos of it or like like the Let's Play series or something. They're like, oh, that looks really fun. I want to play. I mean, that's one of the things that got me into playing Persona Four in the first place was watching the the Giant Bomb video series about Persona Four. It's like that was like, oh, okay, yeah, this total like I was sort of already curious about the game, but then seeing some of those videos, I it made me sort of certain like, yes, this game looks like absolutely something I want to play. I'm going to stop watching this video series and go out and get it and play it for myself. The most successful game in history at this point is Minecraft. Yeah. And it doesn't become that without streaming. It yeah. doesn't become a tenth of that without streaming. Yeah. I bought Minecraft because of streaming. You bought Minecraft because of streaming. Everyone you know bought Minecraft because of that. Yeah. That's like, you know, this... And obviously that's a game very well suited for it. But that is not a limited uh, data set either. Yeah, no. Like, it's... Yeah, it's... It is... I just... I feel like that... The landscape is clear that streaming and and having that sort of like streaming community and like community of fans like assembling around a game and talking about it, playing it, streaming it 
like commenting on videos, liking the video, like all of that. It's a synergistic effect that creates more excitement around the game and gets more people to buy it. I feel like the fact that there are so many developers that are specifically chasing after and catering to influencers and, and YouTube and streamers and, and Twitch streamers and all that yeah. community, like that's such a huge thing in Western game development. It's clear that that is a positive influence on sales, but there is that sort of, I think, it's that very traditional Japanese game company attitude that's kind of very stubborn about it because i think it's important to note because like i obviously can have like provide this perspective this is exactly how the game was in this japanese launch as i was well. going to ask you that yeah, yeah like like the the japanese version of the game you cannot stream you cannot take screenshots videos anything like it's, they had a very and it feels like their policy on taking down youtube videos based on me like looking around at stuff has gotten slightly more lax but like those couple of like months yeah. was like they were just like were extremely aggressive in taking down every single video on YouTube that had practically anything to do with Persona 5. I mean and even for Japan it feels a little behind the times cuz Nintendo just launched a new flagship, you know, console with a share button on it. Yeah. with Twitter and Facebook functionality and it'll have video at some point in the future, probably you know later this year. So, you know, and and when Nintendo's joined that bandwagon, yeah. then you know you're behind the times, right? Yeah. yeah. Like it's it's kind of crazy and you know, I just selfishly I love the share button on the PS4. It is, mm-hmm. I think, the best innovation that console gave the sure, world. And yeah. I think it is the innovation that is going to endure beyond anything else the PS4. Not that there are, aren't other great things about it. I just think that's innovatively, that's the thing the PS4, I think, kicked off. And I, I'm not a streamer, and I don't even generally take videos, but I love taking screenshots. Yeah. And boy, there have been so many moments playing Persona 5 where it's like, I want that piece of dialogue, or that piece of art, or just this moment I want to remember. And I would normally just hit the share button, and I'll do it, and I'll get the stupid message. Yeah. Or worse, I'll go to it, and then just get the sinking feeling in the pit of my stomach, like, alright, I can't do that. Yeah. And it's just annoying. And I guess my other question is, alright, the PS4 has sold like 50 million units, right? Yeah. Why does Sony let developers do this? Turn it off. That's a legitimate, like, yeah. is are someone going to not publish on the world's most popular gaming platform, other than, like, a PC? But sure, you know yeah, I mean? yeah. Most popular dedicated gaming platform because they don't allow turning off the share function. Like, that should just, I feel like that's at a certain point, the console should be like, no, you can't turn that off. That's stupid. Yeah, I think that we might be at a point where, yeah, Sony probably has enough of, like, that, like the dominant market share to just say, hey... Like, we're not letting you just, like, turn this thing off and then people will just accept it. Like, I totally understand why that, especially, like, when the console was launched and there was nothing, no other console had that kind of feature on it ever before, why you would sort of, you would make all those tools available. And I do feel, feel like those, like, first couple of years, you saw that way more frequently of, like, the last cutscene in a game being blocked off and stuff like that. And, and I always just kind of rolled my eyes at it. Because, yeah. again, it felt like a, dude, like, this video is going to get out there, like... It's not as if you can't watch all of Persona 5 in Japanese somewhere on the internet right now. You absolutely can. It's like it's slightly less convenient than it otherwise would have been, but it's not like it's anywhere near impossible. It's yeah. Like those videos are going to get out there. Spoilers are going to get out there. Like that's the that's the nature of how the internet has always been. Is you cannot just like put a cap on that stuff. And just expect like, oh, like everyone will behave perfectly and it'll never get out there. Because as soon as it gets out there, you might as well let anyone fucking use the share feature because who gives a shit? You can go find the last cutscene of this video game. So just let anyone take fucking the screenshots they want to take. Yeah, I mean, it, and it does feel like it's dampened the hype at least a little bit post-launch for sure, this game. Yeah. Of like, I, not that, not completely, but I definitely have felt the lack of like 
screenshots on Twitter and stuff for this game that normally I think a game release, you know, if you just look at like the release of Breath of the Wild, yeah. obviously that game is, is, you know, bigger in terms of its overall audience. But, you know, people had their images out there and their videos yeah. and stuff. And sadly, that's not the case with Persona 5. And that's too bad, I think. Yeah, because it does, it does feel like it sort of turned some of the conversation around the game at its launch because yeah. this news hit, like, basically when the game launched. I mean, it's the big PS4 exclusive of the month, the next two months, you know? Yeah. It's, it's, you know, they had Horizon earlier this year, and people loved it, and also, in part, because you could share it. Share yes, like, it's, it's a really cool gorgeous-looking game, yeah. and it, it suits itself very well. To, it suits itself so well to screenshots that they did the Sony thing of putting in a photo right. in the game. Yeah, so, who knows? Maybe by Persona 6, still, they won't do this, but that yeah. could also I, I just hope that at some point, Atlas USA is able to sort of get enough leverage to say, like, hey, fucking stop this and just let people take their screenshots. Like, this is yeah. crazy. Yeah, and also if you're if anyone's thrown abuse at Atlas USA, to stop that. They, they're not the people who they. Yeah. I know they put out the announcement because they're the people who write in English, but they're not the people who made this decision. That would be a corporate decision in Japan. No American game company is making this call in yeah. the year 2017. Yeah. So anyway, um, one last piece of news this week. Okay. Uh, Xbox, very kind of weirdly out of the blue, yeah. invited the people from Digital Foundry to to Microsoft. To check out the Xbox Scorpio, still not named, and show off show off the specs of that console. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's it's a really powerful console. Yes, it has a lot of teraflops. It it's has, got teraflops up the ass. I can't remember. It's, does it have ten gigabytes of RAM? How many gigabytes? Twelve. Twelve. It has twelve. Twelve, 12 of the, the RAM gigabytes. Yeah, like, like for people who maybe don't know, Digital Foundry is a sort of subset of the website Eurogamer. That's a very good website. Great website. Yeah, and, and Digital, Digital Foundry's sort of specialty is looking at games from a totally like technical perspective. And that's like where if you're curious about like, oh, like what resolution and what frame rate does this game generally run at? Like Digital Foundry is the place to go because they have by far the best analysis of that kind of stuff anywhere on the internet. Yeah. And so it makes sense that like, you know, probably in a week or two Digital Foundry would have had like leaked sort of documents that would have told them all the specs anyways. So I totally kind of respect Microsoft being like, you know what, fuck it. Before this is just going to get out there before E3, we might as well just go up to them and say, here you go. This is what it is. These are all the RAM gigabytes we have have at it and like let the digital foundry do their thing so i appreciate appreciate it from that perspective i just think that like it it felt like a very weird thing to be your like first big major piece of news about this thing officially from microsoft since you announced it at last year's e3 like they've been totally silent on it in an official capacity and then the next thing you hear about it is here's like these like really sort of in-depth technical details about the console that most people that are going to buy this thing are never going to understand any of what this says because i only understand like half of it maybe yeah and we talk about this stuff a lot and also without the context that matters to 99 percent of gamers yeah which is games yes like how does this adjust the way that like video games play and look in a way that yeah. is appreciable to me i continue to think i thought this at e3 i think it now i think their entire marketing strategy with the scorpio is tremendously tone deaf mm-hmm. and I, because i don't think what people are out there clamoring for and really not from the xbox one certainly is just raw you know crazy power yeah. out of their console especially when you go back to the conversation we were having earlier that there are already significant hurdles to making games today that did not necessarily exist before just because of the scale you can make games on. Sure, yeah. And when you add in this, I mean, one, just like with the PS4 Pro, I'm sorry, most games are not going to use your 12 gigabytes of DDR5 RAM Hmm. because 
They can't if they're running on the Xbox One and the PS4 and the PS4 Pro and on multiple kinds of PCs and all that yeah. stuff. Um, you know, that's just, that's not going to, uh, unless you have a super robust lineup of exclusives that we didn't know about Microsoft, but I kind of am guessing that's not the case. So maybe Crackdown is actually going to come out. That's like the one, yeah. the one ace in the hole they maybe have, because obviously there's going to be Halo 6, we're probably going to hear about it this year. Sure. Eventually Although, Gears 5 will come out and there'll be another Forza game, yeah. but none of those things are exciting to anyone because there have been known quantities for years. Although they are still saying that this is not a separate generation, that it will, like Xbox One, the base unit you all have now, some of you have now, will still play games released for the Scorpio. No, yeah, it's, it is the and PS4 I, Pro, PS4 setup. Yes, absolutely. and this, like, in retrospect, is making the PS4 Pro make a lot more sense, because the gap between the PS4 and the PS4 Pro was not enough to entice certain segments of the audience, but it's also small enough that you're not going to completely break the player base. Sure, yeah. And... I don't know what a game released for the Xbox One, which is pretty underpowered compared to, like, the PS4, and then the Scorpio, like, just the technical specs are so vastly different for that. Like, they are effectively two different generations in terms of raw power. I don't know how that works. I don't know if people really want to hear about how it works, because I think the PS4 Pro kind of fell on a lot of deaf ears, too, because the raw power is not what excites people on these things. I mean, just look at, like, the Nintendo Switch. Yeah. That got... So much hype and so much love so far, and it is not running off like the raw. It's, it doesn't have 12 gigabytes of DDR5 RAM. Yeah, you know, and so I just tone deaf is the word I keep coming back to of like, and and I don't want to be selfish, but if this isn't exciting you or me as people who are pretty into this gaming stuff, who's it exciting? I yeah. don't. Maybe the PC audience, but that's not enough to get back on the train. I mean, like my thoughts on this are exactly my thoughts on the PS4 Pro. This exists for the burgeoning 4K TV market, and that is the only reason this is happening. Like, if that was not a thing, like maybe Microsoft has a slight motivation for it, though. Like, it's a dumb motivation now, but it makes sense if you think about. They would have started sort of prototyping this stuff in like 2014. If you remember the the conversation about the PlayStation 4 and the Xbox One at launch. A part of that was that the PS4 was, in some ways, appreciably more powerful than the Xbox One. It was stuff like, oh, if you had the PS4 version of Assassin's Creed 4, it ran at 1080p. Yeah. If you had the Xbox One one, it ran at a paltry 900p. Well, and there were some... I've seen both versions of those games, and yeah. it is a pretty substantial difference. Yeah, I mean, it, it is a difference, and it, like, and it, but also, like, that difference has shrunk over time as like developers have gotten accustomed to developing for both of the platforms that difference is not as substantial as right. it was when both the consoles were new and it's like the, the, the xbox one did not like fail to gain a market lead because it was the less powerful console it failed to gain a market lead because it was a hundred dollars more than the fucking ps4 for and it had worse marketing it had worse messaging it was more expensive and like it being less powerful is a part of that conversation but it's the least significant part of like why the xbox one failed that's yeah. like a little tiny footnote in why that console did not get off the ground as well as the ps4 did and so coming in and being like well now we're just going to say like hey the way we're going to fix this shit is by releasing a way more powerful console. It feels like that's not going to fix it because the most important piece of information we don't have yet is how expensive is it going well, to be? Well, and I saw, it wasn't it, I think the opinion column with this on Eurogamer said they wouldn't expect anything less than four ninety nine. Yeah, like I'm, I mean, yeah. I, I'd like, be surprised if it, like, I think $450 would be like the like floor at which you could yes. maybe expect a price if they're trying to make it aggressive. But I don't see how it could be ever possible that they would release this thing at $400. I mean, I there's just so much confusion around this. Like, in retrospect, if what you're trying to do is make a console that's 4K TV ready, the PS4 Pro makes sense. Yeah. And it's missing one thing, which is the 4K Blu-ray drive. But other than that, 
which is not going to affect most consumers. It makes sense. It's going to be fine for that for the foreseeable future. Yeah. The Scorpio, on the other hand, is kind of overkill, and it's going to, because it's more than you probably need to do that, and maybe it's more future-proof for that, but it's also going to be more expensive for that, and it's also still not going to be the clean break, which is frankly what Microsoft needs if they wanted to completely turn the ship around. Yeah. I think. Um, but, I mean, know. I also don't know if they were... They're not like not really in a position with developers, I think, to try to push like a whole new platform. Probably. Because I think people would... Like, developers would still just make third-party games for the PS4. Yeah. And, like, the Xbox 2 or whatever they would right. call it would, would fall flat on its face. Probably not. I just... I, I think there are still significant legacy problems from the Xbox One. And I don't know if the Scorpio can overcome those things. Like... I want to quit hearing about our console is built off a kernel of Windows 10. I, a desktop operating system is not what I want on my console. Yeah. And every time I launch up my Xbox, my slow-ass Xbox One, like a slow-ass PC, I remember that. Right. So it's like, you know, I, I just, like, they did a recent update to the Xbox One. As I like, guess it is incrementally better and faster again, kind of. But we'll Yeah, it, it is an improvement, but it is not, like... I still like like not only is it still like slower than the PS4, which like the up the relatively recent update of the PS4 also like sped up that yes. uh, the UI for me a whole lot on that, which felt it feels really nice to use again. It reminds me of like when I got it out of the box, it's like, hey, this is really snappy because there was a little there's a period there between updates on the PS4 that it definitely like started chugging for me kind of bad. Yeah. But like another issue I have with the Xbox One UI is that it's just fucking ugly at it's some point. Like it yeah. just it it made more sense early on in the generation. I feel just like the like the stylistic aesthetic, like the cultural stylistic preference has moved so far away from what the Xbox One is trying to go for that you look at it and you're just like, God, this is just gross looking. Yeah, I mean, it's because it launches a Windows 8 machine, yeah. lest we forget. And then, like Windows 10 itself, which is sort of a nondescript operating system that is sort of just like... Uh, we still can't figure out what's better than 7, so we'll just kind of do 7 again. And, yeah. and But we can't do it exactly the same, so it's not going to be quite as good in some ways. It's like it's kind of the same thing with this. of like It's not going to be Windows 8 anymore, but I don't really know what I want it to be. You know? Yeah. Because really, the right UI clearly is the PS4, because guess what? The Nintendo Switch, the other new console, just took the PS4's UI and said, that that works. Yeah. That's all we need. The yeah, UI just, doesn't have just to be a, fancy. Like, Put a list of games, and then like somewhere above or below that, a list of your settings, and there you've you, like fixed the UI problem solved. Like maybe you, there's something you could do to make it slightly more elegant or something. But yeah. the fundamentals of the UI, fucking done. Yeah. So we'll talk about the Scorpio more in the future. I don't. Again, I don't quite know what they're doing, and in some ways, I'm even more confused than with the PS4 Pro because. Microsoft is in a weird position, so who knows? We'll see. Yeah. What I just really hope that at E3 they have something more to show off than Forza Motorsport six or seven or whatever fucking number there are. Uh, seven. seven would be the next yeah. one. Because it's like that's the thing that the Eurogamer that Digital Foundry had access to was that they haven't shown because they didn't have access to it to be able to show right. it to people. Which like not that it would have probably been significant because like a YouTube video of it would not convey what would be probably what would make the game look better. But they had, like, a footage of Forza... I think they actually had footage of Forza 6 running on it, not 7. Okay. And they said, yeah, it looks really good. But it's like, of course, like, it's a fucking car game. Yeah, like, car games are always going to look good. Car games stopped being, like, a really impressive thing to show off your console with around, like, the turn of this generation, I feel like, is where it came. Like, they just look like cars. Like, it looks so good. They just kind of look like cars and were sort of fine. You need to find another, like, yeah. sort of, like, benchmark by which you can just show a game and have it look like it'd be like, oh, it looks really good. Yeah, if this is just an Xbox One that they've thrown a whole shit ton of money and power at, I don't think that's enough for... I don't know which audience that's for. Yeah. So, 
Well, even if you have your 4K TV, I, I don't know, but we'll see. Um, one piece of Doctor Who news I want to go over. Okay. Because Doctor Who Series 10 comes back next week. Yes, So it that does. will be... Next week might be a two-podcast week, but we will talk about the Doctor Who premiere. Yeah, because it's Persona... Because it's not just Persona 5 in an episode of Doctor Who. It's like, it's the pilot or the premiere episode for this new season. So that has that's a lot more to talk about than with a normal episode of Doctor Who. Yeah, so we'll figure out what the hell we're doing with that. But Doctor Who's coming back. And I saw... A, this was, like, linked to me on Facebook or something. Like, like a cookies thing where they just knew I liked Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. And I saw this ad, and I thought it was cool to share. Apparently there's a streaming service I've never heard of called BritBox... But they huh. have acquired the entire catalog of classic Doctor Who. Good lord. And it is up for streaming. I think I looked, it's like six ninety nine a month. Hmm. And they have a lot of other British television, but for listeners of this podcast and for you and me, uh, if you're someone who like likes classic Doctor Who but has always been intimidated of how the fuck do I watch or get it? Yeah. Um, which is you don't have a Barnes and Noble near you that just sells like fucking a hundred DVDs of right. classic Doctor Who, which for some reason every Barnes and Nobles has a lot of like classic Doctor Who DVD releases. A- and for some reason, BBC still puts them out one serial at a time. Yeah, that's a weird really thing. Weird. Uh, I see, ha- they have not finished putting out the entire series, have they? Are there still missing ones, or mm, I don't know? I don't know because I mean. I think that actually they, they maybe did? have transferred all of them okay. to DVD at this okay. point. It's because they also re-release them, and then they do. The yeah, because there's some of them that yeah. have gotten multiple yeah. releases. But anyway, yeah. this is this service BritBox, which looks kind of cool. They apparently have. I mean, I looked through it, and you can just pick by like they had it arranged by Doctor, I think, which is a nice, easy way to do it. That's and how I, I organize. Yeah, it. and I looked by like Fourth Doctor, and it's like yeah, there's the Ark in Space, there's you know Genesis of the Daleks, just yeah. like going in order. Like I see all the stories. Um, apparently, Finric. Yep. Apparently, they are missing. Like, ten episodes or serials or something uh, across the spectrum, and then they don't have the missing ones right now. Right. Obviously, yeah. they are planning to put up reconstructions, but that's a whole other ballgame. Yeah. But, hey, if you're interested in watching Classic Doctor Who, that is by far the easiest layout for that I've ever seen. Because even at its best, when Doctor Classic Who has, has been streaming, it's been like Netflix will have five serials from random parts of the show. Yeah. So if you actually want to look at any of it in context, it's been relatively difficult. So like I've got this bookmark because I in no way have time right now to binge Classic Doctor Who. But at some point, like, I would love to just sit down and watch, like, The Fourth Doctor's Run or something. Sure, yeah. And it's great that that's just a service. And I thought that was neat. Yeah, that's cool. I hadn't heard of that. Yeah. Because Classic Doctor Who does exist in this nebulous state where there's so much of it that it's kind of going to be an expensive hard sell to any streaming service. And sadly, it's not new sexy Doctor Who. So Netflix and Amazon and stuff probably aren't going to put up that money. Yeah. But another service that's more niche, that's probably a good acquisition. So it's in, it's in a really weird state. Yeah. But uh, I'm glad that there's someone who actually has that catalog online legally now. That's cool. Yeah, hopefully in that will maybe, to, like, especially if they start putting up the reconstructed episodes from the missing stuff, maybe that will help spark even more interest in... Getting them some of those animated and recreated because they've been doing that. They just, just did bit by the, bit. They just did the Patrick Troughton premiere, right? Yeah, Power yes, of the Daleks. Yeah, Power of the Daleks. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> very good one. There would be a lot of Patrick Troughton to animate if they yes, wanted to. Yes, most of the Patrick Troughton years, unfortunately. Yeah, poor. But hey, he looks good in animation too. Yes, yeah. yeah. Patrick Troughton has a very animatable face. Yes, he, he does. He kind of looks like a cartoon man, honestly. This, <laughs> this is sort of the thing he was going for. Oh, like in that one's It's the the serial that they released. The Enemy of the World, the yeah. one that they found recently where the beginning of that is they get on the beach yes. and the, the doctor is just running on the beach and they've speed ramped the footage to make it look like he's running faster, like it's a hard day's night or something. Yeah. God, it's so fun. And he totally, you're right, he looks like a cartoon man doing that. It's great. Yeah. All right. Well, more Doctor Who nerdiness next week. But for now, let's do some Persona 5 nerdiness. Let's talk about Perusona. 
All right. Um, normally, I kick off these sessions by asking you what you thought of the thing. Okay, yeah. We know what you thought of the yeah, thing. Yeah, we've had like, we've had a lot of podcasts where I've, I've sort of doled out my thoughts over time. Can I go, then? Yes. The, what? Jonathan, what have you thought of the thing? All right. Uh, Persona 5, I think, is the gaming equivalent, and maybe the purest expression of this equivalent that I've ever seen in this medium, of a three-star Michelin restaurant. Okay. Where... If you're going to be like a three-star Michelin restaurant, it's not just that the food is good. Uh-huh. It's not just that the presentation is good. It's that everything is so magnificent that you are at that exclusive level, right? right? And it's that every individual ingredient has to be the best in the world. Like I watched that movie Jiro Dreams of Sushi about the three-star Michelin sushi right. restaurant. And that dude like is so meticulous about the fish he picks out. And so everything that winds up in that restaurant is the best of the absolute best and then on top of that, the person putting it together, the people putting it together, have the skill that those individual great ingredients are going to be greater than the sum of their already great parts. And then the presentation on top of that is going to be great. And that's how you become like one of the world's greatest restaurants. Right. Persona 5 is the gaming equivalent of that. Where it's not just that you boot this game up and it plays well and it's fun and it's got a good story. It's that every single thing this game sets out to do, and I mean every single thing... It is doing it at 110%. Yeah. It is executing at an insanely high level on any individual element you want to pick out and talk about. The music, it's maybe the best soundtrack in a video game ever. The art, it's maybe the best art direction in a video game ever. The overall presentation, it is definitely the best UI in a video game ever, especially for a JRPG like this. The characters, they're really freaking good. The moment-to-moment writing... Holy crap, I've already had my heart ripped out by this game. And I'm not even like a third of the way through. No, yeah. Because this is a long game. You know, just the the battle system is so off the charts good and improved more than I think anyone thought it could be over Persona 3 and 4. And then all of those individual elements are so great and so amazing. But then you put the whole thing together and like a great, you know, recipe or something, it is somehow greater than the sum of its parts. And it is this immensely powerful, entertaining, emotional experience that is just as good a video game as I have ever played. Period. Yeah. And and that's kind of what I've been coming back to with Persona 5 is just, this is not a game where you're like marveling at individual pieces of it and saying this is good and this is good. You're marveling at all of it and you're constantly finding new things to marvel at while you're getting lost to in it. Whereas like, I had forgotten that we did a podcast last week because it feels like it's been longer since this game came out because those 30 hours in that game feel like half a lifetime. Yeah. They feel like the two months of in-game time they are. Um, So yeah, that's kind of my opening salvo on Persona 5 is, holy crap, just on a basic quality level, put aside my love for this franchise for a second and just me fanboy geeking out when there's a Detective Prince show on the TV or something. It's just, as a video game, the quality of this thing is insane. Yeah, it, it is for, for me, like, it, this is sort of like I've been sort of mulling through thoughts because this is like my second playthrough. And I agree with you, like, a lot of the sensation of Persona 5 to me is you really feel that this team, that this is their third game and how much this team has matured. And like, well, I guess it's their fourth game if you count Catherine because it was the same team. Yeah. Obviously, it's a different franchise and sort of different things, although you can definitely see a lot of... Like, Catherine is important to talk about this game. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stuff about the presentation and I think some of like how the dungeons are constructed comes from mm-hmm. some of the game design stuff they've learned from making Catherine. But you feel this like weight of experience 
to this game that is like more than just like the raw talent that obviously this team has always had going back to Persona 3 but you know the core Persona team has been working on this franchise for so long and is so much more experienced now and you just feel that in every single fiber of this game it is in how the combat is like sort of been improved but then also it's not just like the mechanical things of like oh the combat is better like yes like in, in that kind of stuff it is also just in like the way that the combat is presented and the way that like it is balanced, the way that it works with everything else in the game. The way it works with everything else in the game, but then also stuff that like on a second playthrough you can sort of criticize and appreciate even more is stuff of like, oh, like this is like the flow of these dungeons and the flow of like when you encounter certain types of monsters, like what their abilities are and how like like going through uh, the first dungeon, Kamashita's dungeon, for the second time like brought to me this whole other level of appreciation of like oh shit like now i see like how you getting this persona with like that has bufu here is really important and like it's very clearly designed that you get this here and like you get zeo like the first persona you get in the game that is your new persona is pixie who has zeo that is one of the spells that is not covered by your team at the beginning and then later in that dungeon you get bufu for the first time which is another spell that is not covered by any of your team members at the time and like the way it is sort of slowly introducing to you this is how you engage with the combat here's like the larger sort of tactical level of how you use your main character and switch up personas with your main character to take advantage of the situation and it's like there's a lot of stuff like that all over the place in the game of that it's not just that the core systems that have always been there have been improved and refined is the the raw design of the dungeons the design of the encounters the design of the flow of the game the way that social links flow the way that you getting your different sort of like social attributes like charm and stuff the way those are upgrading in relation to what uh, social links you have access to and when those gate off and stuff like that is so well designed and is so refined uh, like beyond what the persona 3 and persona 4 games did which like are obviously amazing incredible games and and our favorite games ever but are also the only games that are like that so like there was nothing to compare to that sort of quality of like that level of game design of oh like how do you pace out these social links and the social attributes and how does that larger sort of like web of the game and the flow of the game work and now that we have persona 5 i think you can see the how those elements can be improved upon and, and advanced with the experience this team now has and that's been something that on my second playthrough i'm really appreciating in a way i didn't at first, necessarily, just because it's not always apparent to you, because you don't... Obviously, when you're first starting the game, you don't see the larger picture. You don't know where things are going to go. Right. And and it, in on that point, like, it is amazing to me, and obviously I haven't finished the game, so I don't know where this is all heading, yeah. but just in the 30 hours I've played so far, I am continually struck by how thematically, narratively, everything in this game is on point. Yes. And that, like, for a game this big and this sprawling, and even in comparison to, like, the lengths and size of a Persona 3 and 4, this game blows the fucking doors off that in terms of the geographic space of Tokyo and the number of things you have to do and the number of characters and story points being thrown at you. Like, this game is just on a different magnitude of scale, and yet it also feels like it moves with more moment-to-moment purpose than either of those games in some ways. And that's not to put those down. Like, in 
some ways I actually love that Persona 3, for instance, has room for sort of non-sequiturs in the social links and stuff. Yeah. And I miss that a little bit here because there's sort of less of that in Persona 5 because everything is trying to tie more into the main story. But at the same time, the high wire act of having everything in this giant sprawling 100-hour game feel like it keeps coming back to those main ideas and the main theme and story and mechanics of what's going on here, it is just jaw-dropping. It is jaw-dropping that any game... Could do, could do that high wire act of just everything you play, every confidant, social link, whatever we want to call them, you get feels like, okay, this ties into this, which ties into these palaces and this part of the combat and that part of the story, and it is all intertwined to a degree that is just just absolutely amazing and the kind of thing where when you think this game took them like 10 years to develop, once you start playing it, you're like, yeah, I understand why. This, yeah. this, was, yeah. a, this was a fucking thing. Yeah, it is absolutely that, that element of the Persona 3 and Persona 4 that... You know, is the thing that I think we both love so much about those games is how just sort of laser focused they are on the sort of core thematic material they are interested in and exploring that to this insane depth in a way that like the vast, vast, vast majority of stories ever told have never been able to manage that kind of focus. And it's so insanely impressive, especially to be able to maintain that focus over a game that is like 60, 70, 80, 90 hours long. And like Persona 5 is that element, that sort of core element of those games and the thing that like when I think about the Persona team and like their sort of design philosophy for games, that's the core thing I think about. Mm -hmm. And Persona 5 is that like ratcheted up to 11 because it is, it's like not just like the the dialogue you know it's not just sort of like the grander sort of dramatic structuring of the story or anything like that it is in the menus it is in the like the loading screens it is in the transitions it's in everything in the game is designed to build up the like the core theme that is like as, because it's like to me there's sort of like these three pillars of what the story is doing that they all intersect and sort of build each other up which is kind of you have the core narrative theme of like sort of, you know, like, throwing off the chains of society, that stuff. You then have the setting of Tokyo and, like, the setting of the city and of, like, this urban space, which is so important. And then you have the the genre of, like, the picaresque, like, rogues hero, roguish hero novel kind of thing going on. And all three of those things are the sort of the core heart of this game and every single element of it builds up all three of those in different ways from like the menus to the loading screens to the battle system to the way the battle system is paced and like sort of balanced to obviously then like the more sort of direct obvious things you can point at like the writing. Yeah. And it's it, this game wants you to know that too. Yeah. Like it is not subtle. I mean the Persona games are never subtle really. Like it's an interesting thing about them is that they do not often have a lot of room for subtext. It's right. just not something they're all that interested in. They kind of want you to know what the ideas are. And I think that works when you're executing at this high a level. Yeah. You know? Um, but even more than that, Persona 5 wants you to know these things. Like, you know, obviously I think every social link in Persona 3 and 4 is a variation on the main theme of the game, but often it's more oblique than it is in Persona 5. Like, you know, you can definitely draw the line from the moon social link in Persona 3, the gourmet, yeah. to what's going on in the main story, but it is much less literal of a link than what you often get, so far at least for me in Persona 5, where, I mean, there's the whole framing device yeah. conceit to really remind you that all the pieces matter in this yeah. story. And, you know, some of those ties are still oblique in some ways and are left to to subtext you know in some of those more obscure social links but they still have that very direct tie of like this is going to benefit the main narrative in a very literal way there is nothing you don't you are disincentivized to see you are incentivized to see everything in this game because every piece matters and for a game this big i don't know if i've ever seen something quite like that at least with a narrative heavy game yeah yeah 
Yeah, no, it it is definitely it it's a remarkable achievement on sort of every single level, and and I'm just having so much fun playing through it again and being able to like have the perspective I have and be like, okay, like let's because because I've been sort of taking my time with it a little bit more. I mean, I still put a, a crazy amount of time to the game, but I'm not sort of pushing it the way I did when I first played it. Or obviously, you are. <laughs> and there's something that is fun about being like the pressure is off. Like, right. I don't need to, like, desperately see how this, like, game ends because, you know, the story has this incredibly propulsive quality to it. And so, like, when I was first playing, it's like, I just have to keep on seeing what's going to happen next. Now I can just sort of take my time with it, soak in it a little bit more and be like, I just, just like, I just want to hang out with Takumi a little bit. Like, let's just do this. I do want to talk about the pace for a second. Okay. Because it's so fascinating to me because you're absolutely right. This game is incredibly propulsive. And yet it is also knowingly, winkingly episodic. Yes, it is, absolutely. It is lovingly episodic. Like, it, it is aware that you do not make a 100-hour-long game and not have an episodic quality to it. You know, yeah. like... Because, uh, you know, it's easy to forget. Persona 3 is not 100 hours long. No. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's shorter than Persona 4, much shorter than Persona 5. And part of how Persona 3 can kind of sustain... And it has episodic elements to it, too. But part of how Persona 3 can sustain the very, you know, laser-focused story it tells is that it's, it doesn't get to that length and it doesn't get to that level of sprawl, yeah. you know? But Persona 5 wants to tell something more sprawling and so it allows itself to be episodic and yet within the episodes, within the transitions between episodes, within the arcs, you're right that there's this propulsion where you are always feeling the pressure, you are always feeling, you know, the, the want to go on and the, the, the wheels are moving constantly and you are either on that train or off it. Yeah. And if you are on the train of playing this game, it is kind of breathless, even though the game itself definitely gives you the moments to breathe and everything. And it is very, very well paced to never sort of uh, hit too many peaks or valleys in a row or anything. Uh, and that's, that is, again, just one of those high-wire act elements of this game that kind of amazes me when I realized, like, we're not going to talk about the third story arc, but I'm pretty deep into that. And I'm like... I feel like I've barely breathed in these 30 hours, yeah. but I'm, again, on a third story arc, you know? And that's, yeah. you know, in anime storytelling, which is where a lot of this is coming from, story arcs are usually, there is a divide between them, and there is more breath, and there isn't that same kind of propulsion across story arcs. But boy, do they do it here. It's insane. Yeah. It's something that I think now maybe we can transition to talking more about specifics, because I think, like, one of the things that, to me, you know, when I, I first played Persona 5... Because I don't know if you because like like footage of the beginning of the game and stuff like that has been out there. Did you see any of that before you started? Did you know how the game started? I did not. I did okay, not. yeah, because I obviously I didn't either when when I played it, and I loved that surprise of like, oh, this game starts in Medius Rest. Like yeah. this is not start because I was just expecting it to start the way that Persona Three, Persona Four, I mean Persona One, Persona Persona Two start the way that most stories start, which is they start at the beginning. And and that's one of like the biggest criticisms of Persona Four that I don't have that much of a problem with, but I recognize it could have been smoother. And I think they they smooth it up in actually Persona Four: The Golden is the slow slow pacing of the beginning of that game. Like I still like it, but I, I totally see why people had issues with that and were sort of turned off by how it took like three to four hours before you ever saw like the first fucking battle in the game. You know. And it is funny how I think you could almost make the argument that Persona 5 is slower paced in terms of how long it takes to dole out certain mechanics and how little that matters because the game moves with such confidence and style and is constantly giving you things to bite onto. And that's that's one of the things I was so impressed at the the beginning is they figured out a much better way to sort of like on-ramp, I think, the player into the story and the mechanics by like still having it be a long, slow opening because it has to be. You know, it's the opening for a 100-hour game that has... The like most number of like different fucking crazy systems and narrative devices that I can even like 
conjure up in my mind that yeah. all link together in really sophisticated ways. Like Persona 5 more than others has like even more systems on top of it. It needs to take a long time to introduce those systems and, and like story ideas to the player because if you don't, the player is going to fucking ex- their mind is going to explode because they're not going to be able to take in all this information. So as a slow opening. But by, I think, starting the story in Medias Rest and so, like, showing the player this is where you're going to go and giving you, like, these little nuggets of, like, okay, like, this is, this is where we go and this is sort of, like, the setup and the tone for this story. It starts out very dark. It starts out very mysterious. You're introduced to characters like, like, Sai, the detective lady that comes in and is in sort of interviewing you. Or, I guess, the prosecutor. Her, like, stati- her status in the legal system of Japan is confusing to me. Even when I already did, like, 30 minutes of research into, like, what, like, organization she's a part of this stuff. I have no idea. I don't... She's not a lawyer, and she's not really There's, a cop. I don't know. There is a lot of that in this game, and some of it, I feel, is kind of intentional, because you're, you're attacking all this from the ground level of teenagers. Yeah. But it is, like, there are certain things about the power structure of things that... It it's hard to understand. Like, I just don't even know if, like, the position she... The official position she fulfills is something that is, like, actually a concept over here. Right. Because it's like, she's not really a prosecutor, but, again, she's not, like, a detective. She doesn't go out, yeah. like, and is, is investigating things. But, but anyways, that aside, like, you know, it introduces you to She's a good side. character. She's a really good character. And she's sort of, like, that, that, that interview with her... That at the beginning of the game serves as that framing device that, especially at the beginning of the game, you get like very frequently of you going back in time and this is the beginning of, of uh, April or whatever, and you going through your life and you getting the sort of having the more normal persona opening. But then every once in a while, when you're introduced to maybe a new character or and the next phase of the plot starts opening up, it cuts back forward in time with this incredibly, if you've played other Persona games, incredibly stressful sequence of the days flipping yes. by and you're like, don't do this to me. All my life is flying away before my eyes. Don't do this. Oh God. All the social links, all the social links. I'll never finish them. It, <laughs> it was a feeling that took me a weirdly long time to sort of get over playing Persona 5. But anyways, you, you flash forward into time and sort of they frame, okay, this is like who this character is in the larger narrative, like who, what their relationship is to the Phantom Thieves, and or this is like the next target you're going after. I always loved that little bit of the interview. You see the picture and get a sort of an idea of this is where things are going to go. And by feeding you that little bit of information that like you can now you're a the game is sort of acknowledging and sort of like codifying that you, the player, are slightly ahead of where all the characters are at. And I think that helps with the pacing of sort of giving you like I, you're solving the mystery a little bit before them. And it solves some of the problem that like Persona 4 had that like you were absolutely solving that mystery way faster than the investigation team was doing. But the game never was able to sort of like acknowledge or account for that. I completely agree. And I think when you boot up Persona 5 and you see, oh, they're doing this, they're doing in media rest. Your initial reaction, and I know mine was, will that work? Like, yeah. Because that seems initially counterintuitive when you don't put that much thought into it. Because Persona games are these, they take place over a year, and you start as a transfer student, and it's about the progression of time. Yeah. And it's like, if you break that progression, does that work? And then you start to realize immediately, not only does it work, for this story, it has to work that way. Yeah. Because... For a couple of different reasons. One, it, it even adds extra kind of strength to the scenes in like the Velvet Room and some of those ideas of signing the contract and that you're going to go where you're going to go. Yeah. And that this is in, this is fate very literally because we're seeing the story out of order and it has to go there. It cannot go anywhere else. And it's also, I think, a very smart acknowledgement of linearity in a time when games you know, have this obsession with non-linearity in some ways or choices or whatever. And it's like, no, that's just where this is going and you have to think in those terms. Yeah. So that's great. But it's also that, and I think Persona 4 is a great comparison, 
There would be something, I think, very meandering about the first 20, 30 hours of this game if you didn't know the Phantom Thieves were going to get as big as they are going to get. Or that they're going to fall as hard as they're going to fall. Yeah. Because that immediately puts stakes into even the littlest conversations where you can have a really fun moment where, you know, Ryuji and the main character and An and Morgana are all, like, hanging out at the back of the school and talking about how cool it is to be Phantom Thieves. And it's just, like, kids hanging out. And that would read so differently if you didn't have the flash forward of your character getting fucking drugged and beaten on the floor because of what's happened and knowing that there is going to be this fall eventually and that they are going to get that big. It adds this extra layer of resonance to everything you're playing. And you're so right about how it keeps that propulsion up of, you know, you, you, you know that, like, for the second story arc, it's going to be that painter. Yeah. And it actually adds, I think, multiple layers of intrigue, which is you know that's the end point. But when you first see it, you, like the investigator, Sai, don't know how the fuck did these kids find a painter to go after. Yeah, you know? it was like, it, what, like, what is it about? The, how did you know that this dude was actually, like, a total fucking asshole? Yeah, like, whenever... Persona 5 is very good at whenever you kind of feel like you have your footing, they know when to pull the rug out from under you yeah. and get you off your feet again because... And so it's just... It's it's such a smart way to tell this story and, and for the pace and for the themes and just to feel like this is building to something very real. Like, you do wonder, like, boy, could Persona 4 have worked even better if they had a scene where it's like, oh my god, like seven people have been thrown into TVs and yeah. you know, that's where we're going. And ultimately I'm fine with how Persona 4 is told, but you're right, there are stretches of that game that definitely drag in part because it's not clear where it's going or you know it has to get somewhere that it, you just know it has to get to go, but the game is not acknowledging that. Yeah, yeah. Persona 5 has none of those issues. Yeah, there was just like a couple too many scenes in Persona 4 where all the team is sitting down and like going over everything they know being like, well, what could, who could it possibly be? And you're like just screaming at the game like, it's Namatami or it's like, it's this, and, like, oh my God, how have you not put all this together? It's like, because it's, it's a copycat. Yeah, Good exactly. God, it's yes. a copycat. Yes, that is, that is the biggest one of like that section Because it's like 20 of hours of the game. Yeah, where you like, you know that it's like, that they're sort of, you know, chasing after red herring, basically. Yeah, and Persona 5 just doesn't have that issue. Because also, this is something that we'll obviously can talk about more in the later episodes when you've seen more of the game, but there's a really beautiful elegance to the, like, the layers of the structure of the plot that you've sort of already noted. Like, it is very episodic in nature. It has that kind of very Persona 4-esque structuring of each dungeon is sort of themed around a character or it's kind of more themed around a set of characters because you have different sort of like this kind of rogues gallery of villains you go through of the game that each dungeon is themed around a villain but then each villain is also generally associated with a party member that you're going to get and so like that has that sort of episodic structure but then also there's like larger sort of like threads of the game that are like okay this is kind of is one of the reasons why I think talking about the first dungeon and the second dungeon for this podcast works really well because in my mind that is that like opening arc of the game and then it like sort of transitions into something different where it's like you know the next sort of sets of dungeons sort of is like kind of interested in another phase of that plot and so on and so forth and it has this like really intricate layering of dramatic structure over everything else that is so important to maintaining a sense of pacing and maintaining a sense of investment in a story that is over 100 hours long which is the kind of thing that when we talk about the Marvel TV shows, the Marvel Netflix shows on here and stuff like that. It's one of the reasons why it is, can be so disappointing watching those shows when they can't grasp the important of this sort of the importance of this episodic storytelling structure when the format they are packaged in is literally episodes. And then you play Persona Five, and you're like, this understands episodic storytelling structure when it is one contiguous piece of entertainment, but it's like it has layers of episodic storytelling structure all over the place. Yes. 
absolutely. I mean, and frankly, it plays to a lot of Persona's inherent strengths in that, you know, social links are essentially episodic pieces of storytelling and yeah. things like that, too. So it's just, it's all of a piece. So like, this definitely feels like, mechanically, it's a, it's a huge, it like kind of takes the basis of, like, Persona 4 specifically and kind of improves on it in every area. Yeah. You know, and, and story and character are kind of a different thing, although it's very tied in, and I, I'd like to talk about those. Um, but... Yeah, it's it's so impressive in how it's paced and told, and that you're just kind of on the edge of the, your seat with this game. And I don't know where do you want to take this next? Because I kind of have a thought. I, I think like let's have you sort of guide it, just because okay. I don't want to tr- get ahead of ourselves. I want to get to story and characters for okay. it, it soon. But first, I I honestly just because it's at the forefront of my mind, I need to talk about the palaces and how this game does combat and stuff. Okay, yeah, because. Yeah. That is the part that, to me, is the biggest revelation in Persona 5 yeah, in terms I of the jump in quality. Because I love the way they do dungeons in Persona 3 and 4. I have no problem with that. And, in fact, I love Mementos in this game because yes. it's a nice throwback to that. And we'll talk about that later. Yes. But the actual palaces, it's one of those things where I didn't know I was missing this in my life until they made it. And that's that the overall flow of, of just the story stuff around the palaces is great. And I actually think it helps to have the palaces built around a specific... Villain and not yeah. someone who's going to join your team because it all it just gives you a, that little extra sense of propulsion of like yeah. fuck these guys yes you know and, and they make some like really reprehensible villains that you yeah. really want to like throw a fireball at oh absolutely like this game does not pull its punches at the beginning certainly and I assume yeah. later on but um, no so you get into those palaces and there are so many different things going on that it makes Persona three and four look fucking quaint yeah because it, the basic breakdown of combat in Persona three. And four is you have a, a, a dungeon and you have a series of floors and the floors are going to be randomized in their layout. So for each floor, you go, you kind of follow your mini-map until you filled out the whole floor, you fought some shadows, and then you're ready to move on and wash, rinse, and repeat for like 70 hours. Yeah. And they don't really ever throw that many wrinkles into that. And like every once in a while a dungeon will have like, like floor five will have a tiny puzzle or something yeah. associated with it. But it's like very sort of small yeah. and they're incredibly infrequent. Right, and so, like, it's totally fine, it's not a problem, like, luckily the Persona combat system is more than robust enough to allow for that sort of thing, and yeah. I do think the basic, like, mapping of the dungeons is fun in those games, but Persona 5 says, yeah, that's not enough, we are going to have a palace, not a dungeon, and in this palace the floors are going to be pre-made, and they are going to be con- positively filled with puzzles and things to figure out, and, like, obstacles for you to go over in the actual world of the palace not just in fighting enemies yeah but then when it does come to fighting enemies that's going to be super fucking fun because we've added more stuff in the overworld so that like you actually the the stealth system matters way more than it did in the other ones even though that's an important part of persona 3 and 4 actually like getting the draw on enemies is mechanically a a much bigger part of this game yeah and the 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 palaces themselves are designed for it and then you get into battle and one it's just so fucking stylish it never gets tiring last surprise is the best battle song in the jrpg ever I'll, i'll just say that right now and and so you do all that, and you can do the persona negotiations after that. So it's not just cards flying in the air. It's yeah. you're going to talk to these personas and to these demons, and they're going to become characters in their own right, and that's fascinating. And so everything just feels more active. And then when you get out of that, you might have you know more shadows kind of around, but there's sort of a puzzle element of how you're going to get to these shadows and fight these shadows. And then when you're done with that, you can kind of finally move around the floors, and there's so much going on with those, and just the, the music and the atmosphere and the visuals of these palaces is so cool and allows them to imagine these crazy alternate you know world versions of otherwise mundane things like museums and banks and things like that and it's just 
the overall rush of playing through those palaces, and I'm not even getting into some of the bigger structural stuff like, you know, the calling card system. It's just such a fucking rush. This has not a hint of the kind of fatigue you get in any other JRPG, including the Persona games, of the grind of a dungeon. There is none of that in this game. It is so fun to be in those palaces. And if the palaces weren't so fun, I actually would say there's too much of it in the early going of this game. Because for the first two arcs, the game gives you very little free time. Um, sure. It, compared to like other parts of a Persona game, like where you're just out, you know, for like two weeks doing your own thing in the world, like it wants you to kind of get inundated into the main flow of things. I'm not saying this is a complaint. Yeah. It's just that early on they kind of want to, you know, drive all this home with you, and it works because the palaces are so fucking addictive to play through. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, there's there's I agree with everything you said, and there's just a lot to unpack there. Yes. So I think, like, no, you're like, right. Let's take it layer by layer. So yeah. So like the first point is that. Palaces, unlike Persona 3 and Persona 4, the, the sort of the main dungeons in the game, the palaces, are handcrafted. So, like, they, yeah. they have sort of sectioned off the random dungeon stuff to Mementos, which is basically just, they put, they basically just made it, like, they made a, like, way better Persona 4, and then they put a little tiny Persona 3 into Persona yes. 4. That's basically what Mementos is, because it's very similar to Tartarus, yep. which I just love that. And I so did. that's where you can do the grinding and a lot of side mission stuff is sort of in there. But in terms of the main dungeons, they're all handcrafted. They're all very unique aesthetics, and then more importantly, them being handcrafted allows a sense of pacing, a sense of, like, narrative construction around it. So, like, you, you know, sometimes you will, like, halfway through the dungeon, you will encounter the villain of the dungeon, or you'll hit, like, some sort of different roadblock that will force you, like, like in the second dungeon, you, the halfway point of that dungeon, you have to go back out into the real world to sort of, like, you do this whole story point to unlock this door in the dungeon because it's part of their subconscious world and all that stuff. And so there's a sense of pacing and flow that it gets because it is handcrafted. But then also just the sense of, like, the flow of moving through what feels like a more real space. Because it's, you know, it has rooms. You have your map. And there's, like, a real joy to sort of getting that map and seeing, like, okay, there's, like, all the stuff of the palace I still have to go through and kind of seeing. Because you can, when you get the, the find the maps in the game, you can just scroll through all the floors that you can see. And when I was first playing the game, I would kind of do that and be like, what the fuck is going on? Like, this is a weird-ass looking room. What is going on here? There's it's probably very, some, like, pun, there's some weird puzzle that's going to be here. It's very Zelda-esque, I thought, yes. of, like, getting the map and being that excitement of, like, I have stuff to fill in. Yeah, exactly. And so you have that sense of flow and movement through this very handcrafted dungeon. But then to me, the, the biggest thing is that every single every single dungeon is filled with different kinds of puzzles. And I love that it's also not like, it's not just like one, and they're usually like, you know, usually each dungeon has maybe like one or two more significant kind of puzzle mechanics, but all of them have like little tiny things that's like, oh, like this is the section of the art museum where you're having to deal with like laser trip lasers and stuff like that that's not like that's not every single room in that dungeon is not just you dealing with like this is a different configuration of trip lasers it's just like the kind of the beginning part and then they bring it back later and that's all you see of them and then it's like oh like here's like this part where you're moving through paintings here's this part where you're dealing with like you know all of your teammates being sectioned off from you and you have to go like solve this little puzzle of like getting all these switches you have to go like here's this part where you have to go get these passwords here's this part where you have to identify between all these different paintings which one is the real one it's like Every single floor, every single section of the dungeon has another tiny little puzzle that all tend to sort of like build up the larger aesthetic of whatever it is. And I think one of my favorite, even if we're not going to go into it, but one of my favorite sets of puzzles is the one from the third dungeon that's like very sort of like, it's this very basic like algebra kind of thing that runs through that whole dungeon. I love that. And, but that whole 
sense of flow in the sense of like, okay, while I'm going through and fighting all these personas or the demons or whatever, the shadows, I am also sort of engaging with the game on this whole other level of also exploring the environment, finding the puzzles, unlocking it, different like like shortcuts back to where I am and stuff like that, finding the safe rooms that are another really great way of giving the sense of pacing to the whole proceeding. It makes the dungeons mirror the rest of the strengths of the Persona series, which yeah. is that the Persona series is constantly flexing all these different intellectual muscles for you as a gamer. Uh, because, you know, if you're out there just in the world day to day, there's so many things you're keeping track of. But then in Persona 3 and 4, you go into the dungeons and you kind of turn your brain off a little bit. Yeah. And that's okay, but that's kind of how it was. In this, with the palaces, you are not doing that. You are just as sort of consumed with different things as you are in the day to day grind of the game. And that is brilliant because it keeps you engaged constantly. Yeah. And the thing I'm most impressed by is that, like, this is the first time they have done this handcrafted dungeon thing for a Persona game. And, like, they didn't just do it. Like, they did it really well. Oh, yeah. Like, they like all the dungeons of the game, I think, are great. They all feel very different. They have very different sort of mechanics associated with them. And that just sense of solving those puzzles, even when none of the... They're not, like, crazy hard puzzles or anything. This isn't fucking, like, Portal 2. But it's just enough of you, like, huh, I wonder what... Okay, that's what this is. And sort of putting two and two together. Because, you know, I also... I, 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 like, played through Ocarina of Time in, like, a very small window after Breath of the Wild on on your Wii U. Just because, like, I have to do that every, like, three years or so. I just I'll just play through Ocarina of Time again. And it's that sense of just, like, even if it's not hard to say, like, oh, I'm going to shoot that thing with an arrow... Just the act of going into a room, not knowing, of like seeing a locked door, and you're like, how do I get through that? Oh, I shoot that thing with an arrow, shoot the thing with the arrow, go through the door. It's like, it's not an incredibly difficult game task, but it's just enough to be like, oh, this is like this memorable, I remember being in this room, and then moving past this room and moving on to the next thing. And it gives a sense of identity and geography to the whole to the whole dungeon that feels so much better than just going through randomly generated room after randomly generated room. Even if that was acceptable in Persona 3 and 4, the, and I have no idea like how much time and effort it must have taken to build all the different dungeons because there's a lot of them in Persona 5 that's like obviously that's one of the main reasons why this game took so much longer to make than the other Persona games but it was so worth it because it is such a massive improvement over like the two best games ever made and, and again it plays to their strengths like because you know I, I love Tartarus and I actually think pace wise that is still a I, I think Tartarus is a brilliant element of Persona yeah, 3 I agree um but, you know, Tartarus has sort of limited design changes throughout, even though they're cool design changes. And then in Persona 4, all the different dungeons look really neat. And there's a lot of cool, like, aesthetic stuff going on. But because of the way those dungeons are built, there's only so much you can engage with those aesthetics. And what Persona 5, the palaces, do is it allows them to really engage with the aesthetics they want to explore. Yeah. So, so far, my favorite palace is the museum one, the second one. It is one of the coolest things I've it's ever really played neat. in a game. And, like... So what's so cool is that they just get to go crazy and build a fucking art museum and then fill it with all these crazy things to do. And constantly it is this interplay with the aesthetics where whatever puzzles or whatever obstacles there are in the game, or in the palace, they always come in some way from the aesthetic function of the palace. Yeah. Um, you know, if it's the castle, it's a lot of things you would associate with a castle, like, you know, um, the big roving, like, knives going through the air or something yeah, like that. Yeah, like, like secret passageways that you have yeah. to, like, pull, like, weird levers and stuff or, like, you know, the books and stuff right. like that. Yeah. Oh, I love the books puzzle. But like, and then in the museum, it's, as you say, it's the tripwires and it's the paintings and going into paintings and identifying paintings and just like, it has so much fun with that. You can tell 
you can just feel like the art directors of Persona 4 feeling like, this is great, but I want to do more with, like, Naoto's underground base or something. Yeah. So we're going to go crazy with it on the next game. Man, can you imagine if they made a, like, super Persona 4 the Golden that went back to Persona 4 and redesigned all the dungeons in, like, the philosophy of Persona 5 and, like, how fucking crazy awesome that would be? That would be crazy awesome. It would be an inhuman amount of work. Oh, yeah. No, there's no way they would ever do it. But it is something where, like, once you get it in Persona 5... I mean, it's something that, like, I felt when I finished Persona 5. And not just when I finished, like, when I was a good bit into Persona 5 and I had this thought. And it's something I still feel now. If they want to release a DLC for Persona 5 that is just another palace that has, like, a little bit of story justification for it. And it just, like, magically exists at some point in the middle of the game where, like, you could have a story justification for all these... Why all these characters are just going through another random dungeon. Like... I would just fucking buy that in a heartbeat because there's so much fun to go through, even outside of all the narrative context and how like that stuff is all obviously amazing because of course it is. It's a Persona game, but just the sheer gameplay experience of going through the dungeons and the, how well designed they are is so satisfying. I would just buy another like piece of DLC that was just like here's another one of these, but it's in like Fort Knox or something, you know, just something like that. Yeah. It's like, but yeah, so that's the 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 sort of like the overworld sort of like exploring the dungeon part but then another big element of it is obviously like you're talking about the combat and one of the the best things about the combat to me is how the the flow of it is so natural and so amazing it's one of the things that you feel like okay this is what they can do when they are released from the ps2 is you're not like really awkwardly loading into like here's like this big like you know like battle scene that's like sort of feels like it's sort of divorced from the rest of the game and i have to like every time i go to like use my persona it has to like do this like really sort of like scripted cutscene where you like summon the persona and do the thing it's like all that stuff was fine with those games but it very much felt like this is a ps2 game now with like the ps3 slash ps4 version they like the flow from going in and out of combat is so seamless and the way it is combined with you navigating the dungeons through the stealth mechanic that's this very simple just get behind cover and pop 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 from com- com- from like piece of cover to piece of cover that's so satisfying then just getting the drop on the enemy jumping on them ripping their mask off and then seamlessly having that explode into this whole combat scenario where the shadow turns into the sort of persona demons or whatever and you having to fight them and it's everything of the flow of the combat of the way the UI is designed, I love that when you press triangle to bring out your persona, it just it like brings up the menu, your spell menu, but your character summons your persona when you bring up the spell menu. And so it's this seamless sense of like, boom, like persona, or like, like Jack Frost or whatever, and then Jack Frost comes out and then you pick Bufu and then you cast Bufu and the animation plays really quick and like knocks all the guys down. There's no downtime. Yeah, there's no downtime. There's no sense of like the kind of the really awkward, like very stagey cuts between like casting spell enemy taking spell cutting back to like next person that has turn that is very much how presentation wise persona 3 and persona 4 work here it just feels like this one really natural sort of like cut 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 like like incredibly cinematic incredibly fast paced very like it just feels like well edited in a crazy way and just moving between character to character and it's just flowing and then when you kill all of your enemies you know you get the the all out attack and, like, it just goes fucking crazy in your main character, like, or whoever, like, jumps in front of the screen, tightens his gloves, splash screen goes, then, like, you get all, like, here's all your XP, and then, bam, you're right back in the open world, like, ready to go attack another shadow. Like, you know, you can have battle sequences in this game that, that last about 15 seconds, and then you're back into the open world again. And it's so fast, so snappy, so smooth, that it makes combat fun to engage with, even when you're just, like, wiping up, like, like total trash enemies that you go in and you like shoot them with your gun and then kill them and then go on it still is really engaging just through like the presentational 
presentational and like aesthetic quality of it and just the feel of like going in and doing like the melee attack with your main character and doing like the three hits with the knife and like seeing the health bar go down and just like the the sound of like chunk 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 and then the health bar goes down it all just feels really satisfying to engage with in a way that like you know even if i was like playing like i wanted to play the game with like a podcast on or something i wouldn't put earbuds in because i need just like enough sound to be able to hear all the sound effects when i'm hitting people because it's just like oh like yes that has it has impact to it it has like and and I and all the it's just everything. It's like all the the shadows have voice acting now. That that then so the, when you're like hitting them, they'll say shit to you like random bullshit crap. And that like sense of like I love whenever you, if you just kill a shadow in the middle of them saying something, and it's like their kind of voices sort of like trails off and disappears. It's stuff like that. It just all feels so natural. It all feels so cohesive. And just a part of the sort of journey of going through this palace that you don't feel like you are jerked out of the experience in the way that you are in most other turn-based battle systems in JRPGs because by the nature of a turn-based battle system, it has to be sectioned off into this weird little microcosm. And Persona 5 just makes that microcosm utterly seamless. Yeah, it's because it's amazing how the actual battle system itself has not been that heavily refined from Persona 4 which was not that heavily refined from Persona right. 3 other than adding direct commands, right? Like, it's right. not like they... This is not like Final Fantasy 13 to 15 or something. Right, yeah. You know? it's, or, it's like, or it's not like Final Fantasy 10 to 13, which like... Sure, it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. It, it, it is the same fundamental combat system. Right, but it's just there's so many little presentational, aesthetic things that they've done. And one thing that I... This is a little thing, but I actually think it's really important, is... And it's so smart. I wish more games did this. That the basic commands are just face buttons. Yeah, it's like a. It's almost hard to explain, but you know, in Persona Four, uh, you have like the wheel, and you go through that and pick yeah. like attack or persona or just the basic things. And what they've done here is they've have the four basic functions, which is guard, persona, item, attack, yeah. and those are on triangle, circle, X, and square. And you just hit that. And, like, just the fact that that saves the five seconds of cycling through the wheel and picking it makes it that much more intuitive, that much faster, and just means that every battle, no matter kind of how easy or how hard, is just this incredible rush, you know, where you get in and you just go crazy with it and it's constantly moving and moving and moving, but there is so much of that underlying strategy and they've added a lot to the underlying strategy, which is great, but it also keeps you on your toes in a way that is so fucking fun just yeah. fun to engage with i think it like says a lot about like the aesthetic and like physical quality of the combat system that's so satisfying that like i still am having a hard time adjusting to that in the japanese version of persona 5 the circle button was attack and x button was guard in combat because that's you know the circle button is yes x button is, is like or circle button is confirm x button is cancel in sort of like the japanese style and it's more like a nintendo controller where a is on the right and B sure is on the yeah left. it's like that and so it's like the iconography of those buttons in, in japanese culture like signifies that to you and so like that's how it was set up it's like okay you're going to use circle to your main attack and then x to do your guard because you're not going to use guard as often and then i and i was just like not even i it had never occurred to me that they would do this but like it makes sense that in the english version they flip those so that x is attack and the circle is guard and there have been a couple of times where i have accidentally attacked when i meant to guard which is not something you want to do when you're going up against an enemy that's like where the game like will a couple of times just like be like this guy is charging up an attack, like at the beginning of the game when they're introducing the concept of the guard button to you. It's like, oh, we maybe would, like, hey, everyone, let's guard. Like, we're gonna just saying that to you. And then I'm like, I just like run up and fucking stab him in the face with my dagger. I was like, oh shit, no, right, right. Because there's something about 
the satisfying nature of just like attacking someone that like I loved pressing circle. Just like just pressing circle in the combat system when that was attacking the Japanese version. Just like yes, I've just got to fucking and see, stab I, this fucker. I feel and so. It's like if I have such a strong impression of that button being attacked. That like I, it just feels and looks wrong to me in a way I just would never have expected. And see, I feel the same thing about the X button being attacked in this because yeah. I didn't know it another way. So I just, you're totally right. When I hit X to attack, there's just something like meaty and powerful about yeah. it. I think there's also something about the fact that circle is the is a red button on the controller yeah. that it felt like yes, like I'm just yeah. gonna time to fucking fuck your shit up, buddy. Yeah. No, it's it's amazing and just. I will talk about the presentation and aesthetics of this game more as we go along, but in the battles, like, holy crap. They yeah. are just showing off at a certain point with how much style is embedded in this fucking game. Yeah, like, the, the every the, one of the most fun things about getting a new party member in this game is getting to see yep. what their splash screen is at the end of an all-out attack, because... They're so amazing. And just everything about the all-out attack that just goes stark like red and black as like they, you just see all the, oh, the sort of silhouettes hitting people and then your character drops in front and does their little pose and then you get like, you know, Morgana goes, Oh, Soji Kanyo! And then boom! And it's like, yay! And then you like move on. Like there's something just like, I could just do that for the rest of my life and die a happy man, you know? Because it's, it's just this very naturally fun, engaging, cool thing to just constantly be doing. Yeah, and okay, I want to talk about the demon negotiation and the overall okay. like like uh, hold up screen that they do. Yeah, yeah, or yeah, like the just the whole the 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 rogue kind of like the flavor they put on the combat. Yes, to, because but it's more than that. Like it's it's yeah. not just an aesthetic thing. It's this huge mechanical thing where Persona has always been built around this elemental thing where you want to hit the enemies on their elements so you can get them down because when they're down. Mostly you can do an all-out attack. In yeah. this game, they've added so much more to that that it further incentivizes that. And then on top of that, they've added more elemental types that are going on and more t- types of attacks and things. Yeah. So all of that, like the basics of the, the combat system have been so fleshed out that you know you are so much more incentivized to uh, engage with it strategically. Because if you get the enemies down, you get a hold-up screen, and everyone pulls out their guns and just holds it on the personas, which is an amazing image. Yeah. And then the personas are like begging for their lives... And you can talk to them, which is the demon negotiation thing, uh, or you can do an all-out attack, or what's the, you can just cancel and like yeah, fuck you can them just up, say like fuck it, I want to, I'm gonna kill you, but I'm gonna do it slowly. Right, you can do that. So, and it's amazing, and I love the move to having you get personas through the negotiation because yeah. I like shuffle time. Shuffle time is fun, but it is limited in its strategic potential. Right, and yeah. it is so fun to see what the personas have to say, just to get that much more writing from this amazing team, and just to hear their words, and to talk to them, and to go through these just bizarre labyrinthine dialogue trees to yeah. try to collect them, where, like, even when I miss a persona, I'm never mad because it was such a fascinating, fun conversation. Yeah, yeah. And I love that about it. I mean, the demon negotiation thing is is sort of a callback to the early Persona games and Shin Megami yeah. Tensei, but it's not exactly the same, right? No, I mean, it's very streamlined. It's Persona 1 and the Persona 2s had it. And, and, and actually, like, it's a lot of stuff about what they kind of put back into the combat. Is that It's not that they added some, like, the spell types and stuff. It's that they put them back. And that, okay. like, Persona 1 and the Persona 2s had all, like, Psy and Frey and... There's another one that they didn't bring back. I forget what it is. And, like, they had the... Persona 1 had all the guns. And it's one, like... It's another thing that I think we'll talk about probably, like, in the last podcast more in depth. But the, the, one of the big sort of philosophical things I would think about making this game was the Persona team looking back at both their own past Persona games, like Persona 3 and Persona 4, 
and saying what worked here, what was cool, what do we want to bring back? Like I think like Mementos is a clear callback to Tartars from Persona yes. Three. And then also they, but then they went back to the games that they didn't make, like Persona One and the Persona Twos, and say, well, what was like interesting and cool about these games that maybe we didn't. That, that we lost when we made Persona 3 because, you know, we had to strip that stuff out and make our own game. What, but what can we bring back? One of those things is the guns was a Persona 1 thing. All the characters had a melee weapon and a gun weapon in Persona 1, and they did different uh, damage types. And so they brought that back. And then also, like, some of those other, the two other damage types. And then also having uh, light and dark have both insta-kill spells and, like, normal damaging spells. It's the thing that those games did. But then also the demon negotiation is something that Persona 1 and the Persona 2s did. And in those games, it was a cool system that was also very clunky in such a way that like you really kind of had to play them with a guide if you wanted to play it in any way that was efficient. Because it was just like incredibly difficult to try to get a sense of how do you manage these conversations. It was very complicated. It, it, was, like, it was oftentimes very funny because it was based around every different character would have a different sort of like kind of think of like there are different emotes that they would have so like this character can argue and sing and dance and like something else like I did, like they all had like a different like set of different weird things they could do and all of those would have like different demons would enjoy different things from different people the Persona 2's added like group ones where it's like oh like if Tatsuya and Maya like both do an emote thing at the same time you'll get a different effect and so it was like it was cool because there were all these different combinations but it was also just so unwieldy and it really slowed down the pace of those games whenever you were like, okay, I'm in a new dungeon, I need to go get all these new demons, and this is going to be like fucking 15 minutes of me just trying to figure out all this conversation stuff if I don't just look up a pack online. And I love that Persona 5 took the basic concept of this is how you get Personas, and that adds so much to that phase of the game that is so interesting about the, the demons and the Personas being the, the same entities. And so, like, you learning things about demons means you learn things about your own Personas and vice versa. But then it also is like, hey, like, here, let's just get in this quick. You, it's sort of two phases, like one question that you have a response to that's one of three responses, another question that has one of three responses, and they have, and then the, the demons have three different responses that they can have from something which is like positive, confused, or angry. And that's, and so it's this very simple, straightforward thing. You can go through a negotiation very quickly. And then there's also the, like, each demon has a personality type that can, that you can see in, like, the top left corner that sort of can inform you, oh, this is, like, I should maybe, like, be more straightforward in how I answer this question or be more jokey or something like that. And it is just, like, the same basic concept adds a lot of the same character to the game that those games had, but it comes at you in a much more streamlined and, like, efficient way to deal with it that is not, like, okay, this is going to take me two hours to figure out <laughs> how the fuck this system works. It's, you just, like, do it, and you're like, okay, I'll go through this. And then, plus, it has one of my favorite uh, music tracks in the whole game, which is, like, bum, bum, ba-do-ba-do-boom, ba-dum, bum, ba-dum, ba-dum. Like, I just, I love it so much. Although, here's the problem with the Persona 5 soundtrack. Yeah. Every song is so good, I don't want to stop listening to any song to listen to another song, even though I can't, like, be mad at that, because the other song is going to be good. Like, yeah. when Last Surprise cuts off, I'm like, oh, I love Last Surprise, but then that song comes on, I'm like, oh, but I love this song. And then that song cuts off, and I'm like, oh, I do want to hear, like, the results song. Cause that's, yeah. It's like, it's this weird, like, it's like, all the music is so good, you want to listen to all of it at the same time. Yeah. It's a crazy problem to have. Yeah. Yeah, but the, the demon negotiation thing, I think, is just... It's a really well-designed system that took the idea from the older games back and, and just did it better than those games did. And it just adds so much to the sense of, like, 
like getting personas from the dungeons in Persona 3 and Persona 4 was just random happen chances. Like, you know, you got this thing is like, oh, that's kind of okay. Here, it did really, you get that sense of like, yeah, like it's something. Like you had to go right. through a small gameplay challenge to accomplish it. And I love like, because you can also use that system in different ways if you like are really hard up on cash. Yep. You can get more cash that way. If you I've definitely done that items. early on, you have so much to buy. Yeah. And uh, frankly, I just went... <laughs> In the last like two hours of my gameplay, from having like 180,000 yen to 5,000. Oh, yeah, you so, like yeah. The, the economy in the game, I think, is very well balanced to you never feel like you have more cash than you could ever do anything with. Like, percent of four, I feel like you could definitely get a point in that game where you're like, I just have so much money. This is just stupid. I can just buy everything all the time. Persona 5, you definitely need to sort of scrape money together every now and then. Yeah, so it's actually very useful to do that persona negotiation stuff sometimes yeah. and just say, Give me some fucking money. I'm holding you at gunpoint. Yeah. Give me that cash. Yeah. But then, yeah, on top of that, I think there's something about the the holdup, and then there's a lot of other small things of, like, the way that the ambushes work with the stealth system, and then the way that that holdup system works, and then if the enemies get dropped on, get the drop on you, you are surrounded by them, and then they can also, it doesn't happen that often, but, like, they can take one of your guys hostage, or, or the demons can also come at you and negotiate with you, like, first, if you have, like, put them into, like, a distressed state, and they will just be like, hey, buddy! Maybe don't kill me. I'll give you some cash. Like, please don't set me on fire anymore. It really hurt the it's, first time you okay. did it. So that'll happen, like, when you're, they're down to, like, one enemy and it's really hurt. Yeah. And so I, the first time, or one of the time, first couple times that happened, I just, I negotiated with them and, like, got them or something. And then one time I'm like, you know what, fuck it. I just, you were annoying. I'm going to kill you. Yeah. And I backed out and killed the dude. And he, like, yelled no as he was dying. And I haven't done it again since because, like, I felt so bad about it. But No, but you don't get the experience from them if you let them go. You only get the experience from them if you murder them. So you should probably know, just be murdering them unless you really need the cash. It's true. But it's just, like, they do such an effective job at making the demons feel like living, breathing creatures. You know, they're not characters on the scale of, you know, an on or something like yeah. that. But they are just incredible, like, little, you know, fun creatures in the world that you want to engage with. Yeah, because they have their fun little personalities. And they are the same as your persona, so you yep. build up... You know, there's something fucked up sometimes about you using, like, a Jack Frost to kill a Jack Frost if you really want to, you know? Right. And then Jack Frost is fun to negotiate with because he does the, like, hee-hee-ho. Yeah, hee-hee-ho. Yeah. It's so great. Yeah, I like that they kept all that stuff in the English version. It's it's so good. Um, all right, so that, that about does it, I think, for the combat stuff yeah. and the palaces. And it's just, it's... It's so good, man. It's so fucking good. Yeah. Quick note on Mementos. Okay. Because I don't know if there's that much to say about it, other than it's really interesting. You're right. It's absolutely a callback to Tartarus, because it's this thing where basically you are going from... Well, instead of going up Tartarus, you're going down Mementos. Yeah, you're going down this, like, hellish version of the Japanese subway system. But you are basically... It is just one long linear path, and of course they allow you to transport to different places. So yeah. You're never going to like just start from the beginning and go all the way down, but um, you could if you wanted to. Just like with Tartarus, you never use the front door. After the yeah, first time. yeah, you go through the front door once, and you're like, "Well, that's great. I'm never using you again." Right, but I do think it has that same kind of addictive quality as Tartarus does, where it is this continual thing. It's a nice break in the general pace, and they also give really good uh, narrative and mechanical reasons to go there, which is that. You have the requests coming in from the, the 
the fan site. The yeah, I thought there's a really good bit of translation there. Yeah, the, the fan site. What do they call it in Japanese? Uh, it's the Kaito Onagai channel. Like okay. the, the Kaito Help Me channel, basically. Oh, nice. Is. That's funny. But yeah, I like fan site. Yeah. And of course, that ties into the character of Mishima, who is not a party member, but he's a really important character. Yeah. Which I feel like there's more of that in Persona 5. Like people who aren't your party, but they're really important to the central task. Yeah. And I like that. Um, but anyway, so you have that ties into Mishima, and he gives you these requests from the fan site, and so you go there to do the requests. And it also just it feels like the Phantom Thieves, they're not all talk, because it's not just like they've done three people. Right. It's that you're constantly going to Mementos and getting more of those, and it's just it's a really fun thing. My only complaint with Mementos is that so far, at least, it's, I think it's way too easy. Like, sure. Only... I mean, it, it basically it's set up in such a way that you are going back in and fighting the same personas that were in the dungeon you just cleared in each section. Yeah, but like even like I cleared the this is a, a, a from the third palace, but I'm not going to spoil anything. Yeah, I did all the I went through all of the third section of mementos before I even began the palace. Okay, and it was super easy. Like it's just like even like just to like grind for experience, it's kind of hard because everything's so low level. And like um, uh, Ryuji gets that uh, ability at one point where you can just automatically take the masks and stuff. Yeah, if they're too low, too level. low, and I'm constantly hitting that. So I just thought like I almost wish it was the opposite where mementos was more of like a challenge area. Because yeah. I, I like the combats. And generally, Persona 5 is pretty easy. On normal difficulty, I don't find it to be that challenging a game. And that's okay. But I kind of wish Mementos maybe gave you a little bit more of that taste of like... Like Tartarus, which is really fucking hard a lot of the time. Yeah. I, th- I think like, for me, it works because the palaces are where you have the more challenging stuff. Of where you will like yeah. you will get jumped by enemies and stuff like that and have a harder time. Whereas like I think one of the, the, the functions that Mementos serves is that... They didn't want, I think smartly, they didn't want to make it so that you're just going back into the dungeons you already cleared and like running them again or something to, to do like the side quests or to right. go get personas that you maybe missed the first time. Because, I, because one of the things you lose by having a very designed dungeon is that it's not as fun to go back through the same areas when you've already cleared mm-hmm. them through. So this just like provides a means to both give a framework that you can do the much more expanded side quest stuff in that I really love that they're not just like... You know, like in Persona 4, it was, hey, I really need a table. And it's like, okay, I guess I'll go back in and kill five enemies in the, this one area of the game and get a table and then give it to you. And none of this makes sense. It's not really worth doing, but I guess I'll fucking do it. And here it's like they are both tied to Mishima's uh, social link, so you're incentivized directly to do them to engage with the social link side of the game. But then also they have like small little stories around them, and they're good ways to get bits of experience between dungeons. So it's a nice framework to put side quests in, but it also provides that function of if maybe you finished one of the dungeons and were slightly underleveled, or if you finished a dungeon and didn't get one of the personas, like capture one of the personas that you wanted to capture there, you can find them in Mementos. And it sort of just like replaces the sense of being able to go back into the things that you already cleared out and kind of just streamlines that process. You know, and I totally get that, and I, I'm fine with all of that. It's just even then, it just feels like a, a and also like it's the floors are pretty underpopulated so far. There's not that many sure. shadows, so it's fun, and I like it. And I, I'm not saying it shouldn't be there. I just there's a couple times where I'm like, oh, I want a little more challenge here, but. The other thing about Mementos is you ride around in a cat bus. Yes. Basically, because Morgana is not literally a cat, but is in the shape of a cat. Can yes. I say that? Yes. Okay. Morgana takes the form of a cat, and Morgana can also transform into a bus, which ergo makes it a cat bus, which allows for a phenomenal My Neighbor Totoro joke. Yes. Just it is. a phenomenal. It's really good. Yeah. It's really good. And I love 
that nobody gets the reference in the game. Like, they're all just standing around there. It's like, what? Why do you? Can you turn into a bus? It's like, I don't know. Apparently, there's some sort of preconception in the world that cats and buses go together. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? Apparently, by the year 20XX, Totoro is not as popular as it is now. Sure, you know, yeah. They're, 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 they're teenagers, you know. Yeah, who knows? They, they were not raised on My Neighbor Totoro because none of these people had good parents. Sure. Uh, no. Yes, that might what, be the reason. That would be what, a you are. I like. I hadn't thought about it. You are one hundred percent right. None of them would have seen my neighbor Totoro. That's very true because I'm pretty sure you have to love your kids to show them my neighbor Totoro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, I mean, if they had all seen my neighbor Totoro, I don't think any of the main characters would have like the sort of like deep grudge against society that they need to be able to sort of serve as the main characters in this game. This is very much not Hayao Miyazaki's Japan. No. <laughs> yeah. No. No. Yeah. But, but no, I just the the bus is such a it's one of those things really like are they really doing this and then they do it and it's so much fun to just drive around mementos in this stupid bus it's yeah great. and just like the whole the the scene when it first happens is one of the funniest pieces of the game it's like we're we're gonna like does the whole pose and transforms it's it's really really funny oh and then like when you're driving around the dialogue lines you get are so good to the point where. I will be going at an enemy, a dialogue thing will start, and I will do an abrupt U-turn to get away from that enemy so I can finish the dialogue. Yeah. Because there's some phenomenal ones. Like, at one point, Ryuji starts singing, the wheels on the bus go round and round, and then Morgana does the second line, and it's just like, it's so much fun. It's so silly, and, like, they know what Mementos is there for. They give it enough narrative justification. Yeah. But it's, it's, a, it's just a beautiful little part of the game. I have to say, I do really appreciate that they didn't make Morgana in bus form like the most like unsettling, creepiest thing in the world, the way the cat bus is in Totoro. Just like gross and fleshy and weird, and the mere thought of sitting inside of a cat and sitting on its weird cat fur bench is just like, what the fuck does that even feel like? That's gross. It said it's like, no, it's just, it's, it looks like a normal sort of like bus van sort of thing that happens to have like a very Morgana-esque aesthetic and a tail. Like I'm good with that. So we mentioned that the Mishima social link um, yes. is is interesting in part because of how it ties to mementos. That you are incentivized to do mementos, so you can progress that social link. Yeah. And I wanted to talk in general about the way social links work in this game because okay, it's really yeah. fascinating. And we have to start actually with translation things again. Okay. In in the Japanese, it's cooperation, right? Yes. Yeah. And it's always been cooperation. As right? far as I understand it, I've not played the other ones in Japanese, but that's that what I've been told. So it's interesting in in so it's, it was cooperation in three four five so they made no switch to five they still called it cooperation, but in the English version of five they decided to re, they did not call them social links again yeah. they called them confidants, and I think that's a really interesting choice. What do yeah. you think about that? I, I think it, it's smart. It makes sense. Like it fits into the way that the rest of the game is sort of designed around this this sort of phantom thief concept because it is. Because that is what they are. Like, that right. is how they are framed when you do the flash forward to Sai. Sai puts into... One of the things she does is she puts into perspective, like, how the fuck did you guys survive all of this? You must have had some person who was supplying you medical supplies. And it's like, yes, that's, that's Dr. Takemi. It's like, yes. Yeah. Like, and then that's sort of how it's framed. So it makes sense to change them to confidants. I think I'm still just going to refer to them as social links because that's way easier to do. It is. But I think it's fine for, like, like I'm happy to have the game refer to them that way. It also, I think it looks better as the menu option. Yeah, because you can never write out social link. It always had to be s.link. Yeah. So, no, it's, 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 a, it's a good, I think it's a smart thing. I think no one would have blamed them if they just called it social links again. Yeah. And it would have been fine. But there is something very, like, 
the the localization team and it's a great localization spoiler they were very clever to say let's do confidant and just have fun with it and, yeah. and you're right because it is that was that is what is so fascinating to me about the confidant system is that fundamentally it is the social link system from persona three and four but with this they've added so much to tie those dif- disparate parts of the game together yeah. and it's not even as simple this time as the links between like the dungeons and the real world, it's much more complicated than that. Because a lot of it is the dungeons in the real world. But then there's stuff like Mishima where that ties into Mementos. Or you have the Doctor and that's how you get your items and things. Yeah. Or, you know, just other conversation pieces. There's one later on with, I'm not going to say who, but the Temperance Social Link. Yes. And what you get from that, which is not really tied into the dungeons much at all. I mean, you can kind of. But, you know, what you get from that is more of a day-to-day thing. So. Yeah. All of that is fascinating, and I do love the introductions. Like, that's maybe my favorite thing about the framing device, is that every time you initiate a confidant, you flash to the future, and Sai says, I think the Takemi one is a good example of, like, how did you survive all this? What did you do for medicine? Yeah. And then it flashes back and starts the narration of, you know, I am thou, thou art yeah. I, and, uh, or whatever it is, and, and you meet that character, and it's like, okay, this is going to build into something really important. Um, I just love that, and it really does make every confidant you find feel super important. Yeah, and, and it is something where the, the it has the sort of story framing and everything to make it feel important, but then on top of it, like you said, all the social links have another layer to them that is more than just like, oh, I'm just progressing this because I'm progressing it to get the, the Arcana Burst like experience bonuses from fusing personas, which is how it was in Persona 3 and 4. It has a thing of like, I guess Persona 4 did this with all the main characters that as you advance their social link, they got more abilities of like, oh, like now like this character will be able to like survive a fatal hit and stuff like that. But there's so many more in yeah. 5. Yeah, like all the main characters in Persona 5 still have that structure, like and some of them are the same ones. They have some new ones as well, like some of them can interject into demon negotiations and like help you and stuff like that. Or the baton passes. Or, or yes, yes. I, I always forget now that that is not something that Persona 3 and 4 do because it's such an integral part of the Persona 5 system, yeah. combat system, is that when you get a one more attack by exploiting any weakness, you can pass that turn off to another one of your teammates to like be able to chain together a bunch of attacks to like totally wipe everything out. And it's, it's one of the things that keeps the, the combat pace up. But then beyond just like your teammates having those, like every one of the other social links in the game have abilities you gain by advancing them. Whether it's you get new items available at the store or whether it is something that like you will a new ability you can bring into combat in some ways or it'll be something that like a new element or like opportunity of something you can do in the open world or like of the social element of the game is now easier to you and like like all of them have some element like that some of which that are like things that when the first time I played through the game, by the time I got them, felt like such a fundamental part of how I do a certain part of the game that now having to start it from the beginning and not have access to some of that stuff is killing me inside. And be like, I'm going to make sure I max this persona or this social link out immediately because I really need access to being able to do this one thing. It There's a quality to Persona 5, and this is tied into the social links, but everything else where... They're actually, they give you more time to do things in this game than the other Personas. And yet, I still feel more stressed playing it than 3 or 4. Yeah. Because I want to do 
everything. Yeah. And I kind of want to branch off for a second and talk about some of this because one of the things I just wanted to describe the process of me getting the on social link, the Takami okay. social link, because I I do use a guide sometimes to look up social link things. Sure. And I saw that I've I'm using it now for like because I've already played the game, so it's like I'm not going to try to go through every single conversation option. And the thing I love is all the Japanese guides that I had bookmarked, they all still apply because it doesn't matter what it was translated to. It's like whatever it's if it's answer number two, it's answer number, number two. two. Right. So I just like loaded up all the bookmarks I had from October when I played through the game. It's like these yeah. still work one hundred percent. Fantastic. Yeah. But I saw that to initiate the on social link, I would need uh, rank two kindness. Yes. And so I had already started the Ryuji social link because that's really the first social link you get, uh, Ryuji, that is non-automatic. Like you get Igor first, but that's a different thing. Yeah, it's the first one that you then have to like go on dates with Ryuji to advance. Right. Yes, exactly. And so, but from the Ryuji social link, I knew like, oh shit, Ryuji is getting really useful in battle and stuff because I'm doing this this confidant doing the social link. Yeah. And so I'm definitely going to want this for On because. Morgan is automatic, and On is also on my team, so I'm going to want to do yeah. this. And so I know I'm going to need to get my kindness up. So that led me to the path of discovering all the different things you can do to get your different uh, attributes up. Yeah. And they have improved that system so much where I like it in Persona 3 and 4 just fine, but it is an actively awesome and enjoyable part of the game this time around. Because there's so many ways. There are yes. like I bet there are like several that are available to you that you don't even know about. Yes. Probably. But like, you know, for kindness I realized, oh, if I feed the plant in my yeah. room, I can get my kindness up and that won't make time pass, which is great. Yeah. If I go rent the DVDs, which we're gonna talk about later, I can watch the DVDs and get my kindness up if I yeah. watch this particular show. And then there's a bookstore, but there's also a library. Yes. And when I get the books, there's this system where sometimes you can get a seat on the train in the morning and you can read and that's how I'm gonna do that. So I got into this I got super into that system and there's also like going to the diner and you're going to get your knowledge up but you can also order a special dish and that will also get your kindness up or you can work at the flower shop that was actually yeah. later because you have to get your charm up but you know what I mean yeah. and so like getting into all those things and so I'm super into those systems get my kindness up now I'm doing the confidant up with Anne and then that's taking over into the palace that we're doing at that point the castle or something and I'm doing better and better there because now Anne is getting stronger and that's feeding back into something else like Every action you take in this game affects like seven other things. Yeah. It's all so unified. There's nothing that feels like it's completely on an island. And I love that. And there are there are totally things that are open to me, like the batting cages or the bathhouse that I'd love to do at some point. I haven't had the time yet. Yeah. Maybe I will. But like it's there's so many things to do. Yeah, because there's also the movie theater that like cycles through movies every now and then that will like that will that. that will be good because that gives you a three note boost so it like gives you a maximum boost of whatever that trait is for that movie of the day yeah. and then eventually you start unlocking other movie theaters that are showing different movies and it's like there's so much shit in this game for you to be able to do that like it makes trying to play it at like the greatest efficiency possible to like okay like how do I if I want to focus on getting my my kindness up like what are the best ways to do that and it's like there's so many paths available to you to try to like push and influence that in different ways that it is like it's it's challenging to try to maximize that stuff in a very real way that like when i was playing persona for the golden part of that was you know i had played the game through once already but but even like having played persona 5 through already i'm still sometimes challenged by like 
Well, maybe actually, no, maybe like going here would be a little bit smarter because that will also get my knowledge up a little bit right. more and that will prepare me for when I have the midterm test in a couple of weeks. Whereas like in Persona 4 The Golden, it was like, it was very straightforward that if you wanted to maximize shit, it was like, no, there's like really one way to do that. So it's like, this is just the most optimal way to play through this game. Persona 5, I don't think that exists. Like there's, there are too many different variables. There are too many different social links available to you at once that have too many different kinds of social stat requirements that you gain in too many different ways to be able to say, like, if I just focus on this one thing, that will be, like, that is my key to maxing out this game. It's, like, you have to be very sort of fluid with what you're approaching and how you're, you're advancing the social side. Yeah, and you have, to, you have to just take what the loading screen tells you and take your time yeah. and just hope that it'll all be okay in the end. Because, you know, the, the dirty secret is as long as you kind of make sure you do something useful with your time every time, you'll probably be okay. Yeah. But it's just there is that extra layer of stress of, like, what is that? You know, like, uh, I will say, and I actually have this as a question for you, okay. but your guardian, what's his name? Sho- uh, Sojiro. 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 Um, I think he's a cool character, but for some reason his social link will not advance for me. He's a social link dump early on. Okay. Of, of, like, the, I think it's his three to four rank. Yep, that's Yeah, it. it's his three to four rank. You have to dump a lot of time in with him All to right. get that advance. Like, that's, that is a specific, like, you will be able to advance that at some point. Like, okay. like not in saying that, like, it's not blocked off right now. It just takes a lot of hanging out with Sojiro at night okay. to advance that to the next point. And it's, it's like the delivery. And I'm within that jump yeah. because there are so many things to do at night that I just haven't wanted to kind of... It's not wasting time, but kind of do the social link dump with him. Yeah. And I'm sure, I'll get, I'm sure I have plenty of time. You will get to it eventually. Yeah, I will get to it. But it's like... And again, it's you have to remind yourself like... Okay, even if I'm not hanging out with him now, if I just did another social link event, I did make good use of my time, yeah. obviously. But it is kind of that stressful thing. Um, and it is... It's because... Uh, you know, the other games did not have this many things to do at night. In Persona 3, it's primarily Tartarus. Yeah. In Persona 4, you couldn't go out at night initially, right? Yeah, originally. And then in Persona 4, the Golden, there's some stuff you can do at night, but it's relatively limited. Right. And then in Persona 5, it's just, it's like the day, but more. It's more. Like, and that's, that's, I think, for me, it was the kind of maybe my favorite moment early on in the game, and that kind of, like, relatively early on, like in the first 10 hours or whatever. But it's, after you clear Kamashita's palace and then like and after like it goes through the, all the story stuff of him confessing and like closing that section of the game is then when you come home and then like finally Sojiro says hey you can go out at night and then you go out and you can go to Shibuya at night and like that whole part of the game opens up to you because that's when like up till that point you you're kind of like constrained that like you can still you know you can maybe hang out with Yuji you can maybe go like hang out with, with Dr. Takemi you can do some of that stuff but like Every time you go home at night, it's like, oh, all I can do is, like, study on the couch or, like, make a lockpick or whatever. You know, like, there's only a handful of things you can do or I guess I can hang out with Sojudo. But, like, you but you know because it's such a, like, the game is kind of an asshole because it teases you in so many ways because you meet Yoshida, the, the politician, yep. before that point. And he and and Morgana's like, oh, maybe we should go check this out. Oh, but we can't because Sojiro won't let us out at night. And you're like, god damn. Or it. just like the beef bowl job. Yeah, yeah. Like the, or yeah, like the jobs. Like there's a, there's like a hundred small things that are constantly reminding you in the very beginning of the game. I can't go out at night. There, I know there's stuff to do out at night. And when you, that opens up to you, because that, the moment that opens up to you is also the moment that the instrumental version of Beneath the Mask yep. turns into the lyrical version of Beneath the Mask, which is the moment where I was like, oh, that's what this is. Like, that's what this game is. Like, that's what this setting is. Because Beneath the Mask and its instrumental version is a very quiet 
backgroundy kind of track that when the first time I played the game, I was kind of disappointed by it because I was expecting, where's the your affection of this game? Where's the heartbeat heartbreak of this game? Because for most of the beginning section of the game, the only song you're hearing when you're like walking around like the school and stuff is just the instrumental version of Beneath the Mask. Because even for a long time, Tokyo Daylights, the normal daytime travel song, is not in the game yep. either. And it's only until like, you get a bit into Kamashita's Palace that that opens up. And so you're hearing that song a lot. And I was like, I like so much of the music of this game. And this track is fine, but it doesn't pop. It, like, it doesn't, it, it's not sort of like speaking to me yet. And then when that opens up and you get the full version of that song and you go out into the city... That's when I realized, like, this game is about Tokyo, and it's about going out at night, and, like, the nightlife, and it's about this song that Beneath the Mask is, like, far and away my favorite, and, like, this is, like, one of my favorite categories of songs in this game, or, like, in this franchise, but Beneath the Mask is my favorite out in the city song. Like, it is so good, it is so perfect, it's just... It, the the tone it hits is so amazing and captures that sense of right. being in the city at nighttime and just like this very smoky, quiet, sultry kind of track while you're just like going around Tokyo talking to random people is so amazing. And I hadn't thought of it comparatively yet, but I love that song to yeah. death too. And I actually loved it as soon as the instrumental version popped up because even without the lyrics, there's something so beautiful and soulful about that piece yeah. and that it's another it's one of the many bass driven pieces in the game. And, you know, we, we joke about appreciate the bass. The bass expresses so much in this game. Yeah. It expresses a huge amount of badassery. But it also, so much emotion is pushed through the bass lines of songs. I don't know if I can say that about a lot of other music, where the bass yeah. line is like the heart of the song. But beneath the mask early on, you have that. And then when you add that, the vocal part of it. Oh, my God. It just, it kind of melts your heart every time you hear it. Yeah. And you're right. I mean, it is, atmospherically, it does so much. And you just... I love hearing it. And there's like at least sort of three different versions of Beneath the Mask. There's the instrumental, there's, the rain. There's four. There's instrumental, okay. rain instrumental, vocalized, rain vocalized. Okay. I've only, I guess I've only heard, maybe I've heard all four by now. But like definitely all of its different versions are so, so fucking good. Yeah. You're absolutely right. And, and just, yeah, because this game is doing something fundamentally very different with the city and its setting than three or four were. Yeah. And I think that song is a huge piece of unlocking that puzzle. Yeah, and it's just like in, in the, the, maybe we can talk about this a little bit because you said you wanted to earlier. That like, because one of the things I associate with that moment so much is around that time of the game was when I played in Japanese because it was like this whole like one evening I had where I finished Kamoshida's Dungeon, and because I think it was the second or third day I played the game and I finished Kamoshida's Dungeon, and then that stuff started happening, and then it was like I think the, and I'm pretty sure I probably have like a tweet that I made if I remember correctly. Back when I did this in like early October, which was I, I went out at night and I went into con and I like that beneath the mask is playing and I went and I was at the DVD rental place and I hadn't really rented any DVDs up to that point and then I grabbed and I was because I specifically needed um, your courage to increase because there's a lot of courage gates relatively early on in the game and so I was just scrolling through the DVD rental place seeing like looking at the descriptions of the DVD trying to find the kanji that was for Dokyo which is their like what they're or I guess they translated as guts in English and so I just found whichever one increased my Dokyo I was like oh I'll get this and go home and watch this and so then I go and I sit with Morgana and Morgana's sitting on the on the on the chair in the, the brilliant way that that fucking dumb cat sits on that chair like a stupid so human so and great. watching this DVD and 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 this is like been the the quiet rainy version of Beneath the Mask is playing in the background where like so much of the instrumentation has just gone and like faded out and then it's just the vocals for the most part 
and I'm watching this DVD and then the DVDs have voice acting. And so I can understand voiced lines, either voice, like, like audio stuff in Japanese much better than I can just read it because it takes a while to read it and understand it for me. And so I just hear the dialogue from it. And I'm like, at first I didn't process it. And then I thought about it again. I was like, that's like, that sounded like if I were to write in Japanese, what are the most cliched lines of like what you would identify as the X-Files possible? These are what I would write in Japanese. Like, that's really weird. And then I advanced the text and it's like, oh, I did because I didn't even pay attention to what it was named. I just paid attention to the description to see what it gave me. It's fucking called the X folder. And it's like, I sat there in my room in the shitty, like cafe house in like the shitty attic sitting on this bad chair with my cool talking cat friend while it's raining at night and this beautiful smoky song is playing watching old dvds of a like japanese ripoff of the x-files how amazing is that video game uh your tweet because you tweet so infrequently i could find it yes it's i just leveled up my courage by staying up late watching an x-folder dvd with my mysterious talking cat friend persona 5 is very good yes and i definitely tweeted too when i saw the x-folders thing those DVDs are fucking brilliant. They're really good. And there's so many things that are good about them. Like, I've actually watched all the ones available, and I'm, like, jonesing for more, so I hope there's more in the game. And, uh, yeah, they, okay. more do open up, okay. actually. Yeah. But, like, you... One, I just love that they're rentals, so you have to bring them back. And so when you get them, like, you're actually on a timeline to watch it. There's just something that fits the game very yeah. well with that. And, uh... One time I rented one right before I didn't know there was going to be like a seven day event, uh-huh. and I uh, I got it back late. But they 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 waive your first late fee, which yes. is very nice. Yeah, of them. that that is something that now that I know that I'm being so cavalier with it. It's like if it's late, it's fucking fine because I know they waive it, and I feel like a dick. But it's like yeah, fuck it. Yeah, but anyway, like. I just each of those DVDs is so great because you get them home and you put it on, and I just love like. We, we gotta talk about the function of Morgana in this game, and we yeah. will, obviously. But, like, you know, Morgana talks to you, and it's like, oh, you wanna watch a DVD? And it's just, you decide, like, let's take the night off, let's hang out and watch a stupid DVD. Yeah. And we just sit with our little, C- which also I love that you have to go buy the CRT TV from, like, a Japanese Goodwill or something. Yeah, for, like, 15 bucks or something. Right. It's so cheap. Yeah. And, cause it's 2,500 yen, so yeah, yeah. So that would be like 20 bucks. And, uh, you bring it home, and you're watching a DVD, and Morgana is just, like, slumped like a cat on the, like, a cat. But like a person on the yeah, chair. like it's like a cat trying to sit like yeah. a human. It's amazing. It's amazing, and Morgana will just like one. The parodies they have in there are amazing, and like the voice work and everything, and the music. I love. Uh, I don't know what they do in Japanese, but in English, it's "Come on, Skullzy yeah. <laughs> for the X folders. It's basically like that. Come on, Skullzy and that's great. And then you're watching, and then Morgana will just do this like you know backseat driver commentary on it. Yeah, and uh, then you'll get a point boost, and so. Obviously, it works mechanically, but it's also, like, atmospherically and just sheer entertainment-wise. Those DVDs are outstanding pieces of content in this game. Well, if you like the DVDs so much, you need to go to the movie theater because they are presented in a very similar way of, like, you get the dialogue and stuff. And some of them are... I'm really excited to see some of them in the English localized version because I've watched one that, like, in the original was a Yakuza movie, and they kind of changed it to being a superhero movie parody. And there's a couple of other ones of, like, jokes in the Japanese version that, like, there's one in particular that we'll get to probably the next time we talk about this game because we'll be at it in the game because I don't want to spoil it in case they find a really good English replacement for this joke. There's one movie that has such an amazing fucking pun associated with it. It's just so good. And and I'm glad that the English localization has, like, found a lot of fun ways to play with that stuff. Yeah. Can you go to the movie theater at night? 
Yes. Okay, good. Okay. Yeah. That's that because I never go during the day because it's like I've always got better stuff to do. Yeah. You know, like I will never take that over a social link if I can get a social link up. But yeah, I've, I've got to do that. But no, those DVDs, like I raced through those DVDs just because I wanted to see them. Like there were definitely nights where it's like, yeah, I know we were supposed to go to the palace today, but that would cut off my nights. <laughs> so I'm staying like, home and watching. I've got X folders to catch up on. I'm in season six. And people say that's when it starts getting bad, but I'm still enjoying it. Yeah, exactly. So. Oh, it's so wonderful. I love that. I love the books. I love I love so much of this game. And this is where we have to talk about some characters for a second. Okay. And I, I want to start with Morgana. Because I actually don't think you can talk about the day-to-day mechanics of this game without talking about Morgana. Yeah. And that is a fascinating thing to me. Because while Morgana occupies the archetypal place of Igis or Teddy. Like the mascot characters of yeah. Persona 3 and 4. She is he. not... He. It's... It's gender fluid. It's hard. No, it's Morgana. Morgana asserts that he's a god. No, I get it. I get Stop it, misgendering my precious cat friend. I didn't mean to. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. God damn it. It's yes. It's, it's not sorry. his fault that, that that he was created or born or whatever with a weird name that's referenced to something, so he can't change it. I, I understand. I understand. I'm sorry, Morgana. I didn't mean to. Um, I know you're very sensitive about that. Yeah. So anyway, uh, he, Morgana, what does I say? He is very different than those other characters. I think an actual like narrative function and personality. Like you can draw all these comparisons of like actually Morgana fulfills a really similar part early in the game to Teddy. Yeah. But I often don't draw that comparison because Morgana operates so differently. Morgana is kind of the voice of the game. Yes. I mean, Morgana is like the first person voice where the protagonist still doesn't talk, but most of the dialogue they would give the protagonist in three or four, like the inner monologue stuff. Almost all of that goes to Morgana. And almost all of that becomes more interesting because it's your cat friend, you know, yeah. talking that stuff to you as you're out and about during the day. Like, Morgana is, like, 99% of the time on you, on your person, in your bag, in your desk. I love that animation yeah. where Morgana is, like, in the cubby of your desk. And Morgana is constantly commenting on what's happening, giving sort of narration and inner monologue, um, telling you what you should and shouldn't do. Morgana is kind of like the Jiminy Cricket of this game in some sure. ways, where yeah. like the conscience on your shoulder. And uh, on top of that, it's just a phenomenal character, and we can talk about that. And, and a great performance in English, I assume a great performance in Japanese. Yeah. But like Morgana is the beating heart and soul of this game. And like it's not difficult or controversial to say Morgana is the best character in this game, because by design, he has to be. Yeah. You know, It's fascinating to me. Yeah, it, it's something where it, it was something that like played the game from the beginning felt so weird because it's like you're really alone and yep. like it's it's something that like when we talk about the story later is it like a big thing about this game is like how isolating the city is and like what that does to people and it's like Morgana is this like salve because it's like Morgana is with you all the time and in, in, in a way that like I think like it's one of the reasons why Morgana is a cat or a pet is like because that is something that people who live in cities do is they get pets because like even if they are in this like nest of humanity or like precisely because they are in this like nest and super dense core of humanity they are like isolated from everything and like everyone and don't have that connection that relationship and so it's like having this cat with you like kind of gives you that but then also you have like the the cat Morgana is like really smart is really articulate I love that the Morgana is basically for like, especially for the beginning section of the game, by far the smartest person in your main cast, depending on how you want to like consider the main character in that, because it's sort of a weird thing. But like, you know, between Yuji certainly, but and and on, 
in Morgana. Morgana is the one with the plan. Morgana is the one with the smarts. Morgana knows what's going on and is like pushing people. Morgana has like the focus and like the character, like like development reason for like why Morgana wants to solve these problems and go into the palaces and figure all this shit out because he can't remember who he is or like where he came from or anything. And that is so compelling and it's such a fascinating inverse of what Teddy was. Where Teddy was, like, had some of that stuff, and Teddy knew more about the TV world than anyone else because he was from there, but also he was an idiot. And, and right. you know, that was, like, his whole dynamic in the team. And Teddy and Yosuke in Persona 4 had that whole relationship when Teddy goes to live with Yosuke that they became this, like, weird, stupid comic pair. They're the where, odd couple. Yeah, yeah, where, where Teddy's this this bumbling buffoon is always saying stupid shit, and then Yosuke has to be the this, this straight man in the comedy duo and be like, what the fuck are you talking about? You, I can't believe I have to live with you. And in this... You have, like, you even if the real pairing is the main character in Morgana, the comic pairing is Morgana and Ryuji, but the relationship is inverted, where Ryuji is the one who's always saying stupid shit, and Morgana has to correct him. And there's something about how smart and articulate Morgana is that is so kind of, like, fresh, that it's so different for that kind of mascot character. And it operates as such a core driving force for the story that you develop this very intense attachment to Morgana as the player because he's with you constantly because he's this this constant companion that is that if you're reading a book Morgana's gonna have some funny comments if you're answering a question he'll pop out of your desk and go yadu jenekan like yeah you you leveled up your knowledge and all that kind of stuff it's like Morgana's always with you the the cat model like the real world cat model for Morgana is so good and and the animations are so good and and like all of that the physical presence of Morgana in that bag and the way that it's animated it just feels like you can you can like feel Morgana when 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 he's jumping out of the bag like onto your shoulder it's like you can I feel like you can get that sense of like the warmth of of that of the cat and like the sense of the weight or I like if you uh there like there are a couple points in the game where when you are sleeping or if you decide just like fuck it I'm going to like role play as a depressed character that's going to go to sleep without doing anything in the evening. Like you will get a little like scene where Morgana's just sleeping on top of your character and you'll get this bit of text that's like, "Ah, oh, you can feel a weight on your chest. Is this the, the, the oppression of society weighing down on your shoulders? But it's just this cat on your, your chest sort of like pressing down on your sternum and you can't breathe. And it's like all of those little details of living with this cat that is your constant companion is so important and builds up this brilliant relationship you have with like the the closest relationship you have in the game is with the one other character in the cast that is not like at least directly in his form human and 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 you interact with him in a way that is not normal for humans and that's really important to the game it gets like it changes in like the dynamic of that relationship obviously it's going to evolve over the course of the story it really does so just it's so critical and, and amazing it really does feel like Every person, everyone, Persona three, four, and five, at least those Persona games, have you know the one character who we would kind of call the mascot character that is really the team going. Let's take the most stupid, cliched thing possible and make it the best part about this game. Yeah, like like the robot I, that has yeah. no emotions, and I guess is the heart yeah. and soul of that game, yeah. and it's one of the smartest versions of that ever. Teddy. Goes on a fucking journey yeah. in Persona 4. Teddy has one of the most expansive arcs I have ever seen in fiction. I mean, he, is... he goes from being a, a hollow bear costume to being a real weird boy. Yes, I mean, and beyond that too, like the where his arc like rests at the yeah. end. Yeah, is... the last couple of seeds you get with Teddy are like real fucking. They're they're kind of heartbreaking. Yeah, I mean, 
Like, so Teddy is like an even an escalation of that. Like, let's take a teddy bear mascot and do something crazy with it. And then this one is, let's have a talking cat as one of our main characters. And, again, beating heart and soul of the game that you yeah. cannot, you laugh with, you never laugh at. That yeah. they're doing this. You know, it's, it's such a, like, the escalation of that every time of, like, let's just pick something stupid, throw it in the game, and make it the best thing about the game. It's insane. Yeah, because it was something that, like, I have to admit, when I first saw some of the Persona trailers, like, there was a part of me that when I saw that they were doing, like, the Morgana, like, the mascot thing, I was like, oh, are they doing that again? Because it looked so much like, ah, they're, like, doing Teddy again. I hope that, that they're not going to mess that up. And then when you actually play the game, and you get this, like... There are some very, like, Morgana is similar to Teddy in some very core functional roles of the plot of, like, right. there's the amnesia thing, there's the, like, being more sort of in tune with the supernatural side of the story. Like, those are similarities to Teddy, for sure. But, like, the actual characterization and the the ultimate role in the story and, like, where the character goes and how it evolves is so different from Teddy and feels so unique and special to this game in a way that I just have never played another game that had a character like this. Like, almost the, the closest thing I can think of, weirdly, is, like, Trico from The Last Guardian, when that's, like, so different because it's so it's not heavily narrativized in any way. But it's that sense of, like, this constant companionship that, like, you are almost never without and, and you just rely on to just be with you so that way when you, you answer a test question and you feel smart for it, like, you, it's not just like, oh, the class is like, oh, maybe he's not, like, this murderous dirtbag. Maybe, maybe he does have, a, a, like, a heart inside his chest or something. But you also get your fun cat friend that is probably making the inside of your desk smell real special. <laughs> it gives you a little thumbs up, you know? Or, like, when you take the test. Yeah, and you know, in other, it helps you out with the essay questions, right? It's it's so you're technically cheating, but whatever. But like in the other Persona games, that would all just be inner monologue of like, I think I did pretty well on that. Now it's Morgana saying, "Hey, I think we did that right." Yeah, and it's just like it adds that just extra layer of just fun and characterization to all the basic daily actions you do in this game. Yeah, it's so brilliant. Yeah, uh, Morgana, man, Morgana's a fucking character. Yeah. So I, I, and I think with that, let's talk about some like the, the voice acting stuff because I think yeah, yeah. that's that's a good spot to talk about it. Because I have I have a small confession to make of that. This is in no way a comment on the quality of the English dub because what I played of it, which was the first several hours of the game, I thought was very high quality. But there was a point where I hit with the game, and I, it's just no coincidence that that point was basically when you meet Morgana, where I was like. I cannot divorce these characters from the the Japanese vocal performances. This is just I'm just so attached to them in like the like kind of op like or the same slash opposite way that like when Persona Four Arena came out and that had the English and Japanese voice cast like in audio options for the story mode in that game. I was like, oh maybe I'll give the Japanese voices for this a try. And then as soon as Chie talked, I was like, I can't do that. Yeah. This just feels weird. Like, I need... It's, this is something I said to you on Twitter, because we went back and yeah. forth on this, is that that's the one downside of the Japanese and English being so fucking amazing in these Persona games, is that you kind of can't go to the other one if you started with yeah. whatever you started with. Like, you know, I really love the Persona 3 movies, and I think the Japanese voices are great and fit there. It is still hard for me to hear... A Japanese Igus because yeah. English Igus is so good and that's just it imprints on you that's what you hear first and so I think what you're building up to is that you've been playing mostly in Japanese yes I, I have basically like it's been a while actually since I switched back to the English just because it's like and I do like if, if you're someone who's uh, it, like wants to sort of like see what like replay a scene and see what it was with the other language option if there's a very easy way to do it that the game doesn't necessarily tell you that if you go into load a save 
you can press triangle and there's like a thing on the far right that says if that save is in English or Japanese and you can press triangles right there to just swap it. You do not have to go back to the main menu, which is what okay. I did the first couple of times before I noticed this. Then the main menu, there is an option that is switched to English to Japanese. But if you just go to the load save thing and press triangle, that will switch it for you. And so that's a very easy way if you're like, oh, I wonder how like that story beat played out in with like the Japanese voice cast or the English voice cast. Let me just load that save and skip forward to it and like see that scene. Like that's a very easy way to do that. Yeah. So do you want me to mention, talk about the English dub for a yeah, second? Yeah, yeah. I, it's every bit as good as Persona 3 and 4. And it's, well, one thing to come I'll get the complaint out of the way first. Okay, yeah. Someone dropped the ball on name pronunciations. I don't quite know what yeah. happened. It's, it's, it's not with every name. There are some names, though, where they're very bad about Japanese vowels. So an easy one is um, Ryuji, Ryuji Sakamoto. Yeah. You say Sakamoto, like, because it's Sakamoto. Yes. Japanese vowels are all, there's no elongated. Well, it's elongated if you double the vowel. But other than that, it's just singular vowels that take up the yeah. same space. And, and there's no concept of, there's no, like, real concept of stressing or unstressing syllables right. in Japanese. Like, there's kind of one in a weird way, but that's yeah. not really important. And there's really no way to do that perfectly if you're an English speaker? No, because, because, because English is a language that is based on stressed and unstressed syllables. Right. Uh, so there's no way, but Persona 3 and 4 were very good about it generally yeah. uh, in terms of saying the names. Here, they got sloppy. I don't know what happened, but like they will say Sakamoto. Sakamoto. Like I can't even say it. It's Sakamoto, you yeah. know? Um, or or Takamaki for Anne or <sighs> something like that. And it's it's really, it just catches me off guard every time because I will see the name and I know Japanese pronunciation. And I know that's Takamaki. Yeah, and they'll say Takamaki, and it's like, you. I know you guys know better than this. I know you. You know, like, and some actors like won't do it. Like uh, Matt Mercer, who plays Yusuke, will say Takamaki, and he sounds like the odd man out. But it's just like I guess they couldn't get that actor to be sloppy with his pronunciation. So I'm not quite sure why they did that. It's a weird thing. Other than that, I mean, you know, the the honorifics are there. They've, they're generally, you know, the, the this translation clearly is very good. They're very respectful with it. They're very clever with it, but I don't know why those name pronunciations are off as often as they are. Yeah. Because there are other very complex names they do right, like Principal Kobayakawa. Yeah. That you could very easily make that Kobayakawa or something like that, yeah. but they don't. So I don't know. For some reason, some of them are great and some of them are not. So yeah. whatever. Also, like, it's such a small thing, and for most people, it's, or like for 99% of people playing the game, it's not going to bother you at all. I cannot get used to An's name being spelled with two N's. It's one in, just one in. God damn it! Oh, they changed that, so it's yeah. Like okay. it's her her name. It would just be if you're like using the standardized way of translating or like transliterating in uh, Japanese text into English. It would just be a n. Yeah, and every right. time I see a n n, it's just like ah no. Because in katakana, I'm guessing it's ah n, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah okay. Um, so yeah, that's that's weird. Yeah, uh, I hadn't even thought of that because. Yeah, obviously, if you just haven't, like, if you didn't play the Japanese version, like, there's no way you would know that. There's no way it would bother you yeah. at all. Even if you did play the Japanese version, like, you maybe probably very likely wouldn't bother you at all, even. Like, there's just something weird about it that when I see it, I don't immediately associate it as being An's name. Because in my head, her name is just A-N in English. Yeah, so quality of pronunciation aside, the quality of the acting is every bit as stellar as Persona 3 and 4. And... 
just all the main characters are voiced to perfection. And the standout here is Morgana, which I assume is true in Japanese too. Yeah, yeah. But like the actress who plays Morgana here, uh, she does such a phenomenal job. That voice is so great. And I, I looked up, I forget her name now, but it's Catherine something or other. But I looked up her credits and like she's been in lots and lots of anime dubs and things. And like you've heard her before, but she's never had this big a role. And she's just, just home run. Just such a great performance every step of the way. And it's, it's the kind of thing where I, I'm very excited to maybe go back and listen to some of this in Japanese, but I'm probably going to have the reverse issue sure, where yeah. my Morgana is like so tied to that voice, it's going to be hard to have Pikachu Morgana. Right. Um, you know, that because the actress who plays Morgana in Japanese is Pikachu. So. Yes, which is so um, good. Yeah. Um, but like, but she, all, I also I saw an interview with her the other day, and she's like 50 years old, and that seeing that was like. Traumatic. It was just like, holy, it's her voice. Like, she sounds like she could be 20 years old with her vocal right. performance. Like, her voice has not aged at all. It was like, and even when she's like, says something, it's like, you d- what the fuck? How is that even possible? But she's been Pikachu for so long, she could have started when she was like 17. And I know, I mean, she basically to... did. Yeah. And just, just, she's been Pikachu the whole time, but somehow, like, she still just, she could just do the Pikachu thing and it still just sounds like Pikachu. And it's kind of, I think think she might be a demon or something i don't know it freaked me out though when i saw that interview she's a digimon in, in, yes exactly and, and that's and it's ironic that she voices a pokemon but that's I'm, how she but i mean that was the, the whole plan yeah, it's, it's yeah. The, the digimon like they're gonna they're infiltrating the pokemon and eventually pokemon is just gonna be digimon yeah. but uh, the whole dub is great i think the voices for uh ryuji and on are fantastic uh, special shout out to yusuke that guy that is matt mercer he is troy baker's sound alike and so yeah. he's been in other persona games because pretty much the only Persona game that Troy Baker did the whole thing for was Persona 4 and Golden. Yeah. And then, I, I don't know about the Arena games, but... I want to say it was still Troy Baker in Arena 1, and then okay. Ultimax is when it had switched over. Yeah, and in Q and Dancing All Night, it's different. Yeah. But you'll, you can't tell, because this guy is such a dead ringer for Troy Baker vocally, but that means through a lot of his career he's had to do Troy Baker. Yeah. And what I love about his performance as Yusuke is that he doesn't have to do Troy Baker. You can just hear that, oh, this guy's a fucking good actor. Yeah. And... Obviously, he has a similar sounding voice to Troy Baker, so you could kind of be like, did they get Troy Baker to do this? But no, and it's a different quality to it, and Yusuke is such a great character, and I think he brings out so much in him. And I think Yusuke is a difficult character to pull off. Yeah. Because it's Especially a- for the English dub, because he's a very Japanese character, because he's a, like, apprentice Japanese, or, like, traditional Japanese yeah. artist. He's a very... He operates in a very sort of like Japanese only sort of character archetype that you don't really see over here much. Yeah, but I, I love the voice uh, he brings to that role, and I think Yusuke is such a fantastic character. Yeah. Love that. Um, and then some of the other characters that you meet later on are great too. But in terms of other characters you get, it is the, the main cast is generally not people who have been in Persona games before, um, other than Matt Mercer's kind of a hard one because he's, sure. been, he's been Troy Baker, so I don't know if you... He's original here because he's not being Troy Baker. Yes. Yeah. You know, because it was... In Persona Q, it's like Matt Mercer as Troy Baker as yeah. Kaji Tatsumi, you know? Um, but other than that, like, so you have the, the main cast is all new people, but then it is the Persona players doing everyone else, and it is so fun because now they have two full dubs worth of this right. to just hear all the different voices out in the world. You hear a good amount of Yukiko. You hear okay. a good amount of Igis slash Nanako, as sure, you would. Yeah. But the best one is that the woman who voiced Yukari in Persona 3, Michelle yeah, Ruff. Michelle Ruff. She's like every other character in this game. She is so like, 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 like the dub. Distressed high school girl on the way like to class that is saying something like, yes, yeah. that's a like Michelle Ruff. Yep, that's... One. 
or or woman out in the field or whatever. Like she is also Miss Kawakami, your teacher, your homeroom oh, teacher. Oh yeah. So she's one of the you know relatively main characters in the yeah. game. But I I love I think Yukari is one of my favorite performances in Persona Three and one of my favorite vocal performances ever. And I don't feel like I've heard Michelle Ruff in that many other things. So I love that she's in this as much as she is, and it's just fun to pick those out of right. like. Uh, I hear it more with the female voices than with the male voices, because definitely Yukiko, Yukari, and uh, I guess are all over this game. Right. But um, it's it's just it's fun to hear those, and uh, it's just identifying, like, as I say, the Persona players is just a fun thing. And I can't wait for Persona Six when you get to throw the Persona Five people right. in there and just have this revolving door of people Atlas USA likes. And I also think it's just it's kind of a a fun thing because Persona Four did this with Persona Three people of just like bringing the old cast back to play the background parts is such a cool little nod of the hit tip of the cat cap or whatever. Yes, you know, tip of the cat hat. Cap, tip of the cat. There's a bit of the yeah. Anyway, I'm so excited. This game's so great. But yeah, um, I love that about the dub. But overall, I mean, it's really good. Um, you know, they did recast Igor because in Japanese they had to because yeah. that actor. Which, I, I was curious if they were going to do that because I yeah. thought, like, you know, yeah, in, in the Japanese version, uh, the, the, the actor who played Igor passed away, like, actually, like a while ago now, and, and they've been using getting by on old voice recordings of that performance and just sort of like writing around that with like the Persona Three movie and the arena games and stuff like that. And so with Persona Five. Obviously, you can't just do that again because there's so much stuff that needs to come through. Like, if you wanted to have Igor, you would have to recast him and, and have him say new lines. So, the, the, so in the Japanese version of the game, like, if they took that opportunity to say, like, let's recast Igor, and in recasting him, like, let's go for something a bit different. So they made very him, different. <laughs> yeah, like he's he's way more aggressive. He's darker. Like he's he's very confrontational, which well, fits with like you know the Velvet Room is a prison, and he's. Like, I mean, the but it's Igor judge. and. Igor and the Velvet Room are so different than they were yeah. in the other games that, like, in English, you have to recast Igor because that voice doesn't... That's not this Igor. It's yeah. a different Igor, you know? Uh, and I like the new Igor. I I think there's a little too much processing on the voice. Yeah, there's, like, a weird amount of voice modulation, for sure. Because in... I don't think there is in Japanese, right? No, there's not. No, because in, Japanese actors never use modulation, yeah. obviously, because they can just throw their voices and they're really good at it. But I think I, I think this guy could have done it without the modulation. He sounds it's a good voice and a good performance. But I do wish there was a little less of that processing. Other than that, he's great. Caroline and Justine are great. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's there's really no voice I've run into I don't like. Yeah, I really liked of like my experience with the dub. I really liked the voice for Sojido. I thought like he's that's great. that's kind of a hard character to do. And I thought like they found a guy who like sounds like the Japanese, like, has the same quality of voice as a Japanese actor, which I think is, like, one of the reasons why it took me a while to sort of, like, start feeling like, oh, God, like, I miss the Japanese voices so much is because the actor who plays Yuji is really good, but, like, the quality of his voice is very different, like, the sort of the tone he has. And the same thing with Morgana, like, it was hard for me to make that adjustment, but I thought Sojiro, that actor, like, yeah, it's like you could have told me that that was like the Japanese actor that had like mastered English and an American accent. I'd be like, yeah, okay, I could believe that. That's nice, yeah. But anyway, it's, it's all very good. I mean, and one other thing that I think they've improved from Persona Three and Four is that in the anime cutscenes, um, the voices sound better. They don't sound as stiff as they sometimes yeah. did. Like, because they're stiffer because you have to do you know lip flaps and everything. But they're better here than I think they. And there's a lot more anime cutscenes in this game, so that's a good thing. But all, all you know, it's just Persona Three, Four, and Five have some of the best voice acting I've ever heard 
in, in the English language, and it just so happens to be a dub, you know? Yeah. But they did, it's, it's fantastic. And then the actual quality of the localization in terms of text, which is the brunt of the work here, yeah. is fantastic. Would you agree? Reasonably? Yeah, I think there are, like, overall it's really good. I do think there are a couple of places where maybe they go a bit too literal. Like, it's, it's sometimes, like, the text can come across to me a bit too stiff. And, and it's, it's definitely, like, you can tell... Like, if you're on the more main story track stuff, you can be like, oh, like, yeah, like, here it's like, you can really feel like this text has been gone over again and again, like, to make it, like, really work. And then the further off the beaten track you get, I think you can find some places where the localization could have maybe used a couple more passes. I find it's totally forgivable because of how much text there is in the game. And it's always, it's always readable. Like, it always, it makes sense. And it's, if anything, it's just that, like, it can be too faithful to the Japanese it's, in some it's places. It's a better problem to have than the other problem, which would be... The Final this Fantasy is, 15? Yeah, like, this is too tough, so let's just make shit up. Yeah, you know, yeah. Which, like, let's just throw 500 puns into this game where it doesn't exist. Yeah, so, yeah, I, I definitely prefer the way they did it here than, than Final Fantasy 15. Yeah. But, right. but, like, for me, the gold standard for localizations right now is Yakuza 0, because Yakuza 0 just had... An unbelievable localization. Like, what they did with that game is fucking insane. Well, in the level of, of difficulty with the Yakuza game is higher, I think. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, they just, like, they went so above and beyond with that game in terms of the localization that, like, I, I was tremendously impressed. And here, it's just like, it's still very good. But it's like, there are, like, there are a couple of places where I can kind of nitpick it. The one, one of the things that is really fun, though, about playing it with Japanese voices is being able to, like, immediately and directly compare what the line is in Japanese and what it is in English. And there are, like... I've, I've, a lot of the times where something will happen, and there's a couple of, like, jokes and stuff in Japanese that just, like, are impossible to translate into English. And I found, like, they generally do a pretty good job of bridging that gap. And, like, the first one I noticed was uh, the scene where you're first deciding on all your code names. And Yuji's code name in the game is Skull. And how they decide on that in Japanese is that Yuji says, like, oh, like, let's go off of my mask. Like, what is this thing called in English, basically, is what he says. And Morgana says... Uh, it's a skull, and he's like, okay, let's go with that. That sounds cool. And obviously, that is not something you could say in the English dub because it would be usually say, what's skull in English? Uh, it's skull. Okay. It's like, that doesn't make much sense. But like the way they sort of translate it is like, oh, that works. That makes sense. And, and that's sort of a fun... If you're someone who understands Japanese, that is a fun feature if you want to play with the Japanese. But this isn't like Final Fantasy XV where it's actively infuriating? No, yeah, no. It's, I have never had the issue where, like, they're saying something in Japanese and then I look down at the subtitles and I'm like, what the fuck? And, like, it, it was like that effect of where it's like, I have neither processed what the Japanese people were saying nor what the English texts were saying because they were so different that the meanings just sort of conflated and they were so incompatible that they just d annihilated and destroyed each other. I have not had that problem at all. One thing I'm really impressed with is given the amount of text in the game and in the menus and how much is just built into the art yeah. that it doesn't feel like, to me at least playing it without having seen much of the Japanese, it doesn't feel like anything got kind of destroyed or moved no. around too much. Like They did a really good job adapting the art too. Yeah, no, I, I'm, that is one of the things I'm most impressed by with the localization because that seems like that would have been so hard is just little things of I do miss the the visual style of the Japanese stuff just because Japanese as a language has such an incredible visual like artistic quality to it obviously like you know kanji just it's like that's what kanji is and so there's stuff of like I miss having the kanji for the day in the top left corner because it just looked so cool but that's like but there's nothing you can do in English to like because English is just not that like is not that visually interesting. I think they made it as cool as they could. No, yeah, and and they but they made it all fit, and I'm kind of really amazed that they could find like in every single instance in the menus and the UI design, and even to stuff of like 
um, all the sound effects in the world that that in Japanese are obviously in Japanese and are that kind of like manga style sound effect stuff, which is so cool. All of that stuff is in English and like it looks really good. It fits perfectly. Like it looks, it has the same sort of like font treatment as it does in Japanese. So it just sort of bleeds into the background and all the word bubbles that pop up of people just gossiping around you. That's a really cool element of the game. Like all that is translated into English and just like pops up and looks very natural. And, and none of the UI stuff feels out of place or anything in the way that I was really impressed by because that just seems like something, you know, replacing where all the kanji are all over the place and replacing that with English and having it fit into the boxes because obviously kanji Japanese is like way more compressed in text than it is than English is. So it's like fitting that in and then making it look good. I don't know how you do that and they, they, they managed to do it like perfectly. They did. My only complaint about some of that is that there's a lot of some Japanese text in the graphics and I wouldn't want them to change that because it'd be hard yeah I wish there were subtitles a couple of times because okay there will be like uh, some of this actually happens when you're in the school is you're running around the school and I can find the classroom because it's like one oh yeah one two yeah but if you're looking for like the student council room or something there's kanji on that room and I assume it tells you something yeah well it says (laughs) right but they didn't do anything for that. So, yeah. like, you have to, like, literally physically go up to the room and see what it is. And then you can see if it's what you want. And there's little things like that peppered throughout the world where it's like, I appreciate you didn't touch the graphics. One, because it'd be tough. And two, because, you know, it'd be disrespectful to the art. Yeah. But, like, I wish something just, like, popped up or something. I don't know sure. how they could have done that. But. Yeah, that, that kind of stuff is hard of, like, changing the actual graphical right. assets or something like that. Yeah, like, generally in anime, what they do is they just put up subtitles for it. Yeah. So, you know. But other than that, I mean... That's, you can't ask for them to do a much better job than they've done here, especially given the breadth of this game. Yeah, like, it's something that, that translating this just seems like such a massive, ridiculous undertaking that I don't fully... Like, I, it just doesn't even make sense that you can do it at some point, especially you can do it, like, again, with, like, the graphical stuff. And the sound effect thing is probably the thing I'm most impressed by, because that was the thing that, if there's one thing about the Japanese version that I assumed would... Like probably not like get translated into equivalent into the English. It would have been those sound effects, just because that seems like that would have been so much work to try to get and like get into the game and make it look like fit in naturally. Because again, like while you have sound effects in comic books in English, they are not used with no. in anywhere near the extent it is in Japanese. Like it's totally different. Just because, like, Japanese is just a very onomatopoeic language by its, like, very nature. So it's, like, finding a way to get that to work. I, again, I just don't even really understand how they did it, but it, it it's completely seamless. It's it's so great. And, and, you know, again, it just it has the quality of the dub of Persona 3 or 4 where I just get attached to the characters through their voices immediately. Yeah. And let's talk about some of those characters. Okay. Well, I, yeah, yeah. What I want to do is, because we talk about Morgana, I want to hit on some of the other characters from the early part of the game. And then roll back to the protagonist and some of the basic story stuff. And we can kind of call that a night. Okay, yeah. yeah. Before we... I want to say one more point while we're still talking about Morgana and the Japanese stuff in particular. Just because I do want to give a shout-out to, like, all the Japanese cast is is fantastic all over the place. If you're someone that wants to play it with the Japanese voices, like, you will get an incredible Japanese voice cast if you do that. And, And for Morgana in particular, that performance is so incredible. And there's one thing about the performance... That I just want to sort of highlight for people that if you don't understand Japanese and you can't get 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 this part of the game of one facet of the Morgana character that I think is so cool and so well written, 
is um, the way that Morganda speaks is in Japanese is this really fascinating mix of like old high Japanese and like very contemporary modern Japanese. It's one of the reasons why that the line about like the skull mask and all that stuff and Morgana knowing what skull is in English is funny and interesting and an interesting character detail is because you wouldn't expect Morgana to know English at all. Like because the way that Morgana talks is generally very sort of like high, like archaic Japanese and Ryuji is a modern fucking Japanese high schooler. He's taking English classes. He should know. But one of the things that, that um, Morgana does is Morgana refers to himself, like his personal pronoun is the word wagahai in Japanese, which for people who don't know anything about Japanese, you have a huge variety of different personal pronouns that people can use that is basically like their version of I or me that can be different based on your age or gender, like your social status, or like historically there have been different ones like sesha if you're a samurai or something like that. And Wagahai is a very specific reference to um, a Natsume Soseki novel, who's a novelist at the turn of the century, of the 20th century, who wrote a, a short story collection called Wagahai Waneko de Aru, which is I am a cat in English. It, it, although, like, the, the real sort of meat of that title is not just I am a cat. It's, like, I'm a cat and I'm better than you. It's, like, I'm a cat and I am, like, this high, like, like aristoc old aristocratic Japanese cat or something. And it's supposed to be sort of satirical and funny that a cat would should not be like thinking of itself in that highway and sort of parody of stuff going on in sort of that the turmoil and change of the Japanese society at the time. And so the reason, and they never say this specifically, but I think like the implication is the reason why Morgana talks in this weird like mix of wagahai and like fun, like weird, like high school slang and in English and stuff like that is because Morgana is so influenced by the subconscious world in the way that like you see with Morgana being able to turn into the bus from My Neighbor Totoro because there's this general public conception of cats can turn into buses there's also in Japanese society a general con like conception of cats say shit like wagahai but then also they can be like funny and modern and that's this really small but really cool touch that also just informs so much about the character's personality and how he speaks because that's how you do a lot of characterization in Japanese is by having them refer to themselves with a specific like personal pronoun and talk in specific ways and maybe like use like specific kinds of words or abbreviations and stuff that other people wouldn't use and that's how so much characterization is handled and it's just the kind of thing that English there is no equivalent for there is no better way to translate translate the title for that Soseki novel other than I Am A Cat. Like, if you find an English-translated version of that novel or, like, the movie adaptations, it will just be called I Am A Cat because there's no other English way to translate that. But that there's a meaning and, like, a hidden depth there that is intrinsic to the Japanese version that I think it's very cool. And I just wanted to sort of, like, put yeah. that out there for people who don't have access to that because I think it's it's a really... Like, the it's, it's the first time I've played a game this big and, like, in modern in Japanese and, like... There's stuff about the Japanese script of the game that I thought was so interesting and so well written that just can't be translated that I just like kind of want to put out there. No, and I look forward to hearing more of those as we yeah. talk through some of this. And, you know, I do think the, the dub team did as, as much as they could with Morgana on that because yeah. they, I know hearing all of that, I mean, they definitely do these shifts of Morgana like talking more politely or something. Yeah. Or like the way she interacts with On is so funny. Yeah. And the he, lady On stuff. But, um, oh, fuck, I'm sorry. He, yes. Anyway, sorry. Do it's, not misgender my. My cat friend. I'm sorry, uh, but anyway, when he interacts, it's it's. Uh, but it, 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 there are things you just can't do. Yeah, and you know, I think in all of those instances, they go as far as they can in English. But there's a there's a limit because yeah. they're very different yeah. languages. But yeah, cool stuff. Um, so I want to hit some of the other characters from like your base 
squad, you know? Yeah. Like, you start with Ryuji and An, obviously, um, and those characters, and I think it's interesting. First, at first, those seem blander, maybe, than other characters in Persona 3 or 4. Sure. But I have come to be so attached to those characters, yeah. especially Ryuji. I mm-hmm. think Ryuji is a fantastic character. Yeah. And I think... It's something with the whole cast that I've heard a, a complaint about here or there in reviews of like, oh, they're too archetypal. And I I both agree and disagree with that. They are archetypal because Persona is literally built all its characters on the tarot deck, which is about archetypes. Yeah. It's also, it's called Persona. Like, yeah. it's about like Jungian philosophy is like a core sort of yeah. backing of that whole franchise. It's sort of, because it's not, like, they are archetypal, but it is in like, we'll talk about this a lot more in the next episode because you're going to meet some other characters that like we can go into. The game is very aware of the archetypes it is using yes. and it is exploring those archetypes and flipping them on their head because they're not just archetypes in anime. The reason why the anime slash manga, the reason why those archetypes exist in anime slash manga is because they are archetypes and like stereotypes that exist in Japanese society about teenagers and the game is concerned yeah. with how society views teenagers in a very canny way. So we'll talk about that more when, when the story gets deeper into that. But it yeah. is, absolutely. And I think Ryuji is... And it's, I also think the Persona games are in conversation with themselves. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. you are not supposed to be unaware that Ryuji fills the function of Yosuke. Yeah. You know, but... Slash Junpei also slash from Junpei. Persona 3. Yeah. yeah, but those are also three, to me, vastly different characters. Yeah. And Ryuji is, I think, such a fascinating character. You know, you said... Uh, I forgot on what podcast it was, but you mentioned how you kind of realized that... I think it was actually when we talked about the Trump uh, election. And you were talking about, like, you realized through that, like, why Ryuji is the way he is is because he's just so fucking angry. Yeah. And I think that is such a fascinating thing about this char- that character because on the surface he is very directly what he is, which is an angry, angry young Japanese hooligan, right? Yeah. But... And it's not like they... He is those things... But underneath that, like, the pathos that comes from that character, particularly through the first arc, which is ostensibly Ans, because it's, it's, she kind of has the main beef with Kamoshida. Yeah. But I, if you go back further, it's Ryuji who was really heavily victimized by this guy and, and by the whole world. Yeah. And, like, the more you dive into Ryuji and that he, he's a very good person at heart. He's a little sweetheart. Like, yeah, that's the thing that's, that's the, the most heartbreaking about it is that you, you get to know him. And this is something that, in particular, the Japanese voice, like, the, the casting they use is very smart. That they kind of cast against type with the voice actor there that he doesn't. The voice actor Mamoru Miyano in Japanese does not typically play, like, punk-type characters. He's, like, yeah. much more soft-spoken. And there's something about, like, you get the sense of, he's a, he should have been this, like, fun-loving, like, sweet dude who's just so nice and so kind. And was maybe even, like, is a bit of a pushover. And maybe that is kind of, like, what he was. But his family circumstances, and in particular... Um, his circumstances at school where he used to be like on like you know kind of the track team star and all that and seemed like he had shit going really well for him at school and then Kamashita came into it broke his fucking leg yeah. made it so he had to quit the track team all his friends from the track team now hate him and so it's like he has been shit on so much by society that you know he dyes his hair blonde he becomes like the stereotypical like punk kid at school because like he can't take it anymore yes and I love that about this character, and I think one of the best things about it is through the social link, which I've maxed, and then also just the general day-to-day stuff, is the friendship he and the main character develop is really poignant to me. And, you know, because this character is sort of, this archetype is kind of your male best friend in the other Persona games. Yeah. But if you think about it, like, Junpei is at a certain distance from you in Persona 3 for most of the game. Like, he is your friend, but he's not your best friend. And in fact, he, like, tries to push you away at various points in that story. Yes. And, you know, Yosuke in Persona 4, 
I, he, like he's you're his friend more than he's your friend in some way. Like sure. it's a very parasitic kind of relationship at some point, and the game knows that. Like that's the theme of Yosuke's social link. At yeah, some until point. they they have to bro it out and, and right. punch on their, each yeah. other in the face on the riverbank. But Ryuji and the protagonist here seem much closer to me than a lot of those other pairs. And yeah. part of it is just how they're introduced. Like, it's a little off-putting at first that this game thrusts you into the palace stuff without introducing pretty much any of the cast. Yeah. Other is, than, like, Sojido or... That's just a really Sojido, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is a very different thing than Persona 3 or 4. Like, you meet Yosuke and Shie and Yukiko at school. You don't meet them on your way to school where you run into a fucking castle, right? Yeah. But partially because they have that, like, we found the castle together, but also that through that, I think Ryuji and the protagonist, without even knowing each other's histories, realize, right, we hate the world similarly. Yeah. And they're just, like, they're compatible as friends. The way it's written is very much, I think, a really good... Uh, impression of a male friendship. Yeah, and it's, how that like strikes up in school in particular is like it's it's yeah. the combination of proximity and like this like similarity to each other's like oh like yeah like we are like birds of a feather or something like we can do this. Yeah, there's just something about that. I, I think he's a great character, and I think the way he develops and especially particularly in those relationships is is great. And his social link is. Not like the most, the best, most original social link in a Persona game, but it's a really good one. Yeah, so. yeah, I like it a lot. And, and I think there's something also to be said about one of the things that sets him apart and I think sets the friendship and the relationship between him and the protagonist apart from the other Persona games is that, in general, the, the Phantom Thieves in this are way more proactive than the other cast of characters and that the in Persona 3 and Persona 4, the main cast of characters are reacting to things that are happening around them. They are very like... Tartarus exists, the Dark Hour exists, and we have to sort of figure, like react to that fact and figure out what it is and solve it. The investigation team, obviously, murders are happening. We need to stop the murders. People are getting thrown into TVs. We need to solve that. And they're reacting and like following after that. The Phantom Thieves are... This is one of the reasons why it needs to have the framing device, because if it didn't, it would be so aimless. The Phantom Thieves are... The thing they are reacting to are like it's the general evil in society. Like it's such a vague concept that like what they're really doing is as like following the sort of picaresque rogue hero sort of tradition that the, the, the genre it's based on is they're seeing that society is fucked up and they're just going to sort of try to fight against it. And so they're very specifically going out picking targets deciding what they want to do and going after it as an organization and i love there's like a small character detail of that when they decide to go after the target all the members of the team have to unanimously agree that we're going to go after this person it's like this this sense of like they are friends and they are also like crusaders in a way together that makes it so that like ryuji and the protagonist are both like actively working and like striving towards this greater cause that does not have this like single unified goal of we're going to catch the criminal, we're going to stop Tartarus. It's an abstract goal of we're going to make society better in some way. And that, I think, is one of the things that informs the, the closeness of their relationship. In Persona 3 and 4, the characters have to fight. Exactly. Because they are given personas and they have an end goal and they are literally the only ones that can do it. In Persona 5, there are special circumstances. They get their personas. They're the only ones so far that can see this other world, the metaverse, yeah. but they could very easily ignore that. They could step it aside, they could stop being the Phantom Thieves whenever they want, and the world's not going to end. Yeah. You know, like, the, it's going to be shitty, because it is, but they're also, they have no expectation that they're going to fix the whole world. It's, yeah. They're going to do what they can one piece at a time, and you're right, there is something so compelling about that amount of proactivity to the narrative and to this team. Like, 
Because each of the Persona 3, 4, and 5 have a central team, you know? Yeah. But you don't think about it as much as you do in 5, where being the Phantom Thieves is such a bigger deal in this game than C's or the investigation team is in, in those games. Yeah. Yeah, and I do think it informs all those character relationships, absolutely. It's also another important element, this is not just Duji, but it's all the characters, is uh, their, their chat stuff. Of that, oh, like, God, it's not great. just you're going out and you're, like, talking to them when you're talking to them. Or, like, they give you a phone call, like, Yosuke always calls you in Persona 4 all the time. In Persona 5, it's like you are constantly, like, every single day you're checking your phone for your messages. And, like, during, like, after big story events, it is a, like, really accelerated way to do some of, like, the character unpacking stuff they like to do. Which is where some of that, like, pacing stuff in Persona 4 comes in of, like... We do not need to have another scene of where every character gets together at the cafeteria and talks this shit out. Like, this is not that big a deal. In Persona 5, they get that through of, like, it's like this little, like, one-minute-long chat conversation with all the characters sort of, like, getting together in their little chat client and talking it out on their phones. If Persona 5 did not have those chat conversations, it would be, like, 200 hours long. Exactly, For yeah. them to get it's, all that stuff it, out. It yeah. is so expedient at being able to make sure, like, okay, as every single character is up to date, and we have to make sure, like, let's kind of, like restress this point a little bit and like kind of push it to the side so that like the the we know for sure the player character understands they need to do this or something like that is a very efficient way to do that and then also add some character to to the characters yes also i want to say i desperately wish sega which owns atlas had done something gimmicky and done like a tie-in messaging app for the iphone yeah based on the one in this game because i want that messaging app it is so sexy and red and awesome Oh my yeah. god, it's great. I want my face drawn by Sojinori Sojima. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. It's just, although, can you imagine, like, if in the actual game you had to, like, wait out the amount of time it would take for some of them <laughs> to type out the messages they type? It's so... It's such a convenient version of texting someone in this game. Of just, like, They're all... It's just immediate and instant, and it's like fucking, like... You know, Makoto or someone just, like, comes back with a solid paragraph of the text. It's like, here's my fucking thesis statement about what we're going to start talking about. Uh, they're all using really good dictation. Yeah. Yeah, who knows? But, yeah. It's also funny that mostly they don't do anything with, like, typos or anything in those. It's just, like, normal speech. Yeah. But they do get their lead speak thing from Persona 3 out in the fan site message boards. Yeah. Which yeah. is translated really well in the English. Yeah. You also, you will meet a character later on that maybe is a little bit more... I haven't seen what they do with the English localization, but at least the Japanese is a lot more colorful with how they make use of the chat client. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's fun. Uh, on would be the next character to talk yes. about. She's a cool character. I like her a lot. Yeah. I like her a lot. I, I And because she also fulfills, by virtue of, of gender... A very different role early on because Persona 3 and 4 are pretty gender equal in the amount of characters there are. Yeah, like especially like at the beginning you are introduced to like in Persona 4 it's you, it's Yosuke, and it's Chie and Yukiko so it's it's an even split. And then in Persona 3 it's you, Junpei... I, it's actually, I guess it's slightly more guy-heavy because it's Akihiko and then Mitsuru and Yukari, but it's yeah. still, like, yeah, it is more even. But that means people have their friends and their groups kind of based yeah. on gender. But on, like, it's a sign of how much of an outsider she is that she's completely comfortable with these two guys yeah. who are also just outsiders. It's her and her boys. Her and her boys. And for a while, it is. It's because Morgana... You know, presents as kind of, as a cat, you know. Yeah. But Morgana, as you say, identifies as a he. So it's three guys slash cats. Yeah. And 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 on. And it's actually funny how long you go without even thinking about that. Mm-hmm. And then eventually, it's Yusuke is the next character too. So it's a lot of guys. And on just by virtue of that, you know, uh, comes across as a different kind of female character than this series has had before. Yeah, it's like it's and it's sort of like a big part of her character arc. I don't know how deep you've gotten into her social link. Like halfway, like halfway. Five. Okay, so you've you've been introduced to some of this stuff then, because I think that's about where I am in my game. Um, that where she um, 
part of her character arc is that she is this very innocent kind of girl. Like she's like she is physically attractive, and a big part of like that is also she is. I think at least I don't remember if her she's fully foreign or if she's half foreign. But like she's certainly she's not all Japanese because you know she has natural blonde hair and all that stuff, and. That's part of the context of the game that, like, maybe American players are not going to fully understand is that that, like, exoticizes her in Japan and, like, maybe she's, like, a very clear minority. Like, Yuji is Japanese. He has dyed his hair blonde. Uh, An does not have that choice. Like, if she wanted to, and she says this in one of her social link events, that she considered dyeing her hair black to avoid getting bullied and harassed. And, like, and so that's a part of her background is that she is, I think she's this very innocent girl that doesn't, at this point in her life, she, like, she hasn't really th- sort of thought of herself in a very sexual way yet. She hasn't, like, tried to approach people in a sexual way or, like, like engage in, like, romantic relationships, really. That's not, like, not the stage in her life that she's at yet and she's not that interested in. And so that's one of the things that makes it interesting of the position she's placed in is because of the way she is born. She's perceived by the people around her, in particular, obviously, Kamashita in a like very sexual light and she doesn't want to engage with that even though but she's also doing this part-time job as a model because again she's she's a blonde-haired blue-eyed white girl in japan like that is a much easier like path for her to just sort of like stumble onto and she does like got onto that career path without thinking about the sort of like more sexual aspects of it as well and there's like a sort of coming of age element to that part of her character that I think is really interesting and subtle that builds up over the course of the game that like it's sort of introduced you to now. Absolutely, and it's it's one of that the clearest gaps between you know societal perception of a person and self actualization yeah. in that she is supposed to be for society the archetype of basically like the slutty schoolgirl. Yeah, and she's not that at all, no. as most people aren't. Yeah, you know, and I also want to say like this series gets some flack for not like always having like you know you can play as a female character or something sure and i think i've seen that there's a waypoint piece that like i thought was good on one hand and also very frustrating on the other hand that dealt with i mostly find it frustrating because i think it ignores how genuinely thoughtful this series is about gender and frequently i mean how much of a focal point that is for like persona 4 in parts and how just well-drawn characters are through their genders which is a factor in society, obviously, in how yeah. you actualize yourself and how you are seen. And I think Persona 5 is very thoughtful on that level. And yes, it would be... I would love to see the Persona team do a female character from the start. And I'm not saying the choice. I mean, just have a female protagonist yeah. and write the game from that point. But when they write from the male perspective, which, you know, it are guys running the team and stuff, yeah. and I see that's where they're coming from authentically... For, that does inform things, and it is not as simple as saying they could just have a female skin. The game would not no. work at all because the relationships... And I'm not talking about even sexual romantic relationships. Just like you and Ryuji, that relationship is not that... That friendship is not the same friendship if it's a guy and a girl. It's, yeah. And, you know... Especially, just, like, it, because they are also teenagers, which, like, makes it even, yeah. like, a bigger divide. Yeah, and so they that's why, if you look at, like, the Persona 3 Portable with the female main character, so much of that game is different because yeah. you just have to. Every little character relationship has to be rethought because they're putting a lot of thought into the gender stuff. They're not... These are not just interchangeable characters. Yeah. And so, yes, I do think it would be cool if they did more from the female perspective in a future game. But while they're doing it from the male perspective, I actually think it's it's incredibly thoughtful on a lot of those issues. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I do think, like, another part of, like, criticism I've seen that I think, like, 
I think there are ways to make this criticism and make it complex and valid, but I've seen it mostly in this very shallow form from some people that haven't even played the game yet, which is on On's costume as a fandom thief is obviously sexualized to a certain extent. Like, it's not... It's not uh, was the Sydney from Final Fantasy 15 or no, something like that. It's or it's it's certainly not. I think probably like the ultimate version of this is Quiet from Metal Gear Solid 5. Is maybe the most extreme I've seen the, it. The ultimate version of this is insert name of female character from Metal Gear Solid here. That's that is a Can very fair that? point. Yeah, I hadn't considered the larger sort of Kojima uh, magnum opus like yeah. universe whatever. But uh, yeah, so so yeah, like but it obviously it is sexualized to a certain extent, but. The thing I've been very frustrated with, and and I think it's a similar thing to some of the criticism about the gender stuff, is like you can just say that about like oh like they should, should just make it like a female character like blah 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 blah, but like they that's a very shallow criticism. I would want people to sort of engage it on a deeper level of like well again like well why is it a male protagonist and what does that change and what would it be a female protagonist how would that change the game and like consider that and address that in your criticisms and then also i think specifically with the on one you can maybe still have an issue with the way that her costume is sexualized or whatever but it's also important to note that like we are not talking about them much now but there are more female cast members in the game none of their outfits are sexualized and it's like i think it's a very specific thing they're doing with having her costume be sexualized and when you get down her social link you see like there's a part of her character arc is sort of embracing that side of female empowerment and you can disagree with that character arc and have like issues with it from a feminist perspective if you want to the thing i've been frustrated about is that a lot of those criticisms have not been going to that part it just like goes to the well her costume is sexualized and then that is bad because it's like it's like this anime cliche or whatever not dealing with like the deeper issues that the game is broaching again you don't have to agree with like the game's conclusions or anything like that but at least to tackle with them is what i would like to see i'm gonna drop drop a surprise on you sean okay western game criticism might not be built to engage with the game as deep as persona yeah do we think maybe. that might be the case? Yeah, it's so the, when it's yeah. all built on clickbait, that maybe they're not ready to talk about what are they saying about the the rot at the heart of society? Sure, yeah, you can't do that in 140 characters. It's like, but, but it's like it it is it happens here and there. It's like it, it is getting sure. better, but it is like, and you know, it's obviously Persona Five has just come out over here. Like it is a long game. People are it's going to take a while for people to play the game, have it sit with them, and put it out there. But it's like just like it's something that. Since I have been so hungry for the other sort of voices about this video game, I have been seeking a lot of that stuff out. And, and some of those perspectives I've just found, like... Cause partially because, like, like, the game has just come out. These people have not... There's no possible way they have finished it. So it's like... Like, I am happy and, like, excited to engage with, like, thoughtful criticism on those parts of the game. Because there are parts of the game that, like, deal with sexuality. It's, like, sexuality in particular that I have some issues with that are... That like it's it's an issue with like Japanese society like issues with the portrayals of homosexuality in Japan in general and I'm really curious to see there are two small scenes very small scenes of this game I'm really curious to see how they localize them because it's like you have to do something with them because it's like it just would not fly over here but like so there are some issues with Persona Five in that regard when you're like looking at it from an American perspective I would like people to engage with those issues yes yeah. absolutely engagement is different than agreement. We do want engagement. Yeah. So let's talk. Uh, just going through some of these characters quickly. I yeah. mean, the other one at this point in the game would be Yusuke. Yes. So you get in the second story arc, kind of the focal point there. Yes. And we talked about him earlier, actually, a little bit. But I love Yusuke. I love. Yeah. He is yet another character who, like, 
none of these characters are like literal orphans, you know? Um, yeah. I guess Yusuke kind of is because he lost his mother, but... Yeah, so I guess he is a literal orphan. Yeah, but, but he was also like adopted by like who should have been a nice family friend right. at the time. He wasn't yeah. like in an orphanage. Yeah, so all of these characters have either missing parents or absent parents. Yusuke is the closest you get to a literal orphan because his parents are dead. Yeah, and uh, and but he's a fascinating character through that because on some level he is the most like not fucked up, right? Like he can he can talk to people. He's 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 very uh poised yeah. and everything. And he's what incredibly I incredibly articulate. Incredibly articulate. And what I love is throughout um that second story arc and then on to his social link and stuff beyond that is realizing that, oh, this dude isn't uh all together. You know, like yeah, he, he has his he's own a issues little, too. He's a little off kilter. Yeah. Yeah. He has his own issues to deal with and some of that is just like he's very repressed. In a lot of different ways. And the whole point of that second story arc is that he actually doesn't want them to go after uh, Madarame at first. Yeah. He's, he doesn't really completely realize what Madarame is doing to him, even though I think he knows it in his heart. And getting through that and then kind of the other issues where kind of his whole life is upended by that. He's a really fascinating character. And I can't wait to see what the game continues to do with him because you get his social link um, much later than... Yeah. Some of the other characters who... How, how much of his social link have you done? It's like two events. Okay. Yeah, because his is actually one of my favorites in the game. Yeah. Like, I think his... Because, I, like, Yusuke is a really interesting character because he is a lot more subtle than, like, Persona characters tend to be because he is, like, repressed. He's sort of, like... And, and he says a lot, like, in terms of, like, he speaks a lot of words, but he doesn't say a lot with them a lot of the yeah. time because I think he does have that... Where he doesn't necessarily always want to express how he really feels... And it's an interesting dynamic for that game. It was one of the things that, like, playing it in Japanese early on with that character, I had a really hard time sort of, like, grasping him because I think, like, because, like, part of it is just, like, the way he speaks is a lot harder to understand in Japanese than a lot of the other characters because they just speak, like, bratty teenagers. It's like, I can speak that. That's fine. I can, I, bratty teenager Japanese is, like, the easiest Japanese to understand. So that's, that works great for me as, a, like, an on-ramp to this game. And so, like, that was sort of a hard thing to sort of get with his diction. But then also, he, like, doesn't put everything out there in the way that a lot of the characters of this franchise generally do. And there's something about that that's really interesting because a lot of his character arc in like his social link stuff because you like see it like his first social link thing is he wants you to help him sort of paint and like come up with new paintings and use uh, the the other world to sort of find new inspiration with art and that journey and that side of the character I think is really fascinating and the ways in which he's like the whole journey his character has is like trying to find a way to express himself uniquely through his art. And I think like that is not just, it's not just through his art, but it's like also just like expressing himself to people and his, and opening himself up to friends because he's basically straight up says when you like, after you defeat Madarame, like he's like, Oh yeah, I've never really had someone to talk to before. Like this is he's it's, you just go up to talk to him. I think it's like when after like in front of the subway station or something after you defeat Madarame and he's just like, you say, oh, yeah, well, if you ever need anything, you can talk to me. He's like, oh, wow, I've never had someone to just talk to before. I'm like, okay, geez. Like, yeah. I don't really consider myself a particularly social person, but Yusuke, you take this to a whole other level. I've talked to people before. Yep. All right, uh, a couple other things before we kind of roll back, and I want to talk about some story points. Okay. Uh, Igor, Caroline, and Justine, and the yes. new Velvet Room. Holy fuck, someone was depressed awesome. when they came up with that. Yeah, that- I, I, I love the design. I love your your shitty little toilet that you can sit on to think about random shit. Uh, yeah, I I really love their velvet room set. I think it's, it's awesome. When I they first introduced, they said not persona ex uh, fusion. They said persona execution, and I'm like, 
are you what? All right. And then it starts, and you know, you put your personas in the guillotines. Caroline and Justine put a fucking tarp over them. Yeah, they put a bag over their yeah. heads. And you just decapitate your personas to make new ones. It's like actively traumatic the first time you see that. See, this is what I love about you playing this game for the first time is I totally forgot that that was a thing to sort of like note because you fuse personas so often right. that in my head it's just like, well, of course you fuse personas by throwing them in a guillotine and cutting their heads off. Like any other way doesn't even make sense. And then when you say like, Oh, like, you don't fuse personas, you execute them. I'm like, well, yeah, of course you do. It's like, oh, wait, no, yeah, that is that is kind of crazy, isn't it? Huh, I, for, I, I mean, forgot that I used to be surprised at it. Like, the first time you, you, you do one with Jack Frost, like, Jack Frost is walking up, like, with his head yeah. hanging and he's got his shackles. It's like, it's so traumatic to see Jack Frost get his the, head The, the mascot up. of the company that has made this game, he's been the mascot for Atlas for over 20 years, and like, you're throwing him in a fucking, the people's razor. It would be like if in Super Mario Odyssey... The way you got stars was you put Luigi in a guillotine and just cut Luigi's head off or toad or something. Yeah, that's that's how you would like unlock the metal hat or something. Is you just grabbed a fucker and like cut his head off and took his hat. Or when you have a persona a fusion accident and <laughs> yeah. it doesn't go down as so Justine or Caroline like gets out the fucking chainsaw and like right. smiles and cuts their head off. Uh, so fucked up. Man, can you imagine if in Breath of the Wild, every time you completed a shrine, you took that old motherfucker, threw his ass into a guillotine, cut his head off, and, like, took something out of his, like, neck, and that's where the shrine orb was? That would be such a better game. <laughs> Persona 5 goes for it. Yeah. It goes for it. Yeah. So I, right. I really do love Justine and Caroline a lot. They have really incredible uh, character designs, and I like their their conflicting personalities. Are I do, too. They're, they're no Elizabeth, but they are good Velvet Room attendants. Yeah. So, I love it. Um, and just the overall design of the Velvet Room, of really going far with that expressionism aspect of it, of it being the inside of the character's mind and psyche. Yeah, and it, it's his own prison that he's made for himself. Yeah, and that, and that Igor is, is saying, the word they use in English is rehabilitation. Yeah, um, which is, that is, like, kose is in okay. Japanese, it means rehabilitation. Okay, yeah, it's, it's great, and... They do such great stuff with that. So many other small characters we will get to in the weeks to come. Because yeah, I'm excited to talk more about Sojiro because I like him a lot. Sojiro and Takemi and, oh my god, your teacher. I'll get to that. <laughs> yeah, Kamakami since it's pretty Jesus good. Christ, what they do with that. Anyway, um, but I want to go back to the protagonist. Okay, yeah. And that kind of ties into the start of the story and everything. Yeah. And go through some of that. Um, first off, what did you name your protagonist? Uh, the same thing I named him in Japanese, Akatsuki Shun. Okay. I think it's a good name. Akatsuki means dawn, and it literally means red and moon, so I thought like that fits with the red style. And Shun just sounds like my name, but it's Japanese, so I was like, that works. Nice. And they were both one kanji in names in Japanese, so it was like, really concise and like very easy to identify when my name would pop up. And, I, and in Japanese, if anyone's curious, when you had to name your character, you are given three spots for both names, and that's it. It's like, that's, that's all you get. And that's one of those things that you'd never think about when a game comes over here in English. And it's like, oh, here, like, it's like, oh, why do they only give you seven slots to put, like, all your characters in? Which I'm very happy Akatsuki, the, like, my surname for my character, takes up the exact character space limit they had. I'd never even considered that I might not have enough room to put that in English when I decided on that name when I got the Japanese version. Yeah. But it's like something that, you know, like, that was someone's fucking, like, month was figuring out. Oh god, like it doesn't, like the game just won't accept a name that is longer than three characters because it wasn't designed that way. What do we do? And it's like, you know that that was like someone's whole fucking job localizing this game was expanding that out to like seven characters each or whatever it is. 
well, then throughout the game of how yeah. it's going to, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I could not, I, I got there and I had not thought beforehand of like, oh, right, I have to come up with a character name. Yeah, and, and you probably want to name this Japanese so it's not right. crazy looking next to everyone else's right. name. Right, and uh, to my knowledge, there is no canonical name. There isn't. But here's the thing. Yeah. The Persona 3 protagonist has two canonical names. <laughs> that is and, that is accurate, yes. And uh, But it's the, the name Makata, Makoto yeah. has become more canonical. Yeah, so that's the movies. But I never used the manga name, which I love, which yeah. is Minato Arisato. Yeah, that's the one I used when I played Persona 3 because that was before the movies came out. Yeah, and I had never used that with that. Um, so I used it here, and I thought it I actually fits, it fits the character it fits really, really well. well. Yeah, yeah, Minato Arisato, and it's just a good name, and it comes up, and I like people calling him Minato or Arisato-san or something. Domo Arisato, Mr. Minato. <laughs> That's going to be his his cover album of uh, yeah. 80s American rock. <laughs> it's Domo Arisato, Mr. Minato by the Phantom Thieves of the Heart. <laughs> Exactly, so that's what I went with. On um, their, from their album Calling Card. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it is kind of fun to uh, play a Persona game and not have like the canonical name out there so you can just do something fun with it. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. So my guy is, is Minato. And it is funny how attached you get to the name that you have to stop like and just say the protagonist for like yeah. general conversation. Because we don't have like a Narukami yet or anything yeah. with this guy. Well, while we're still talking about names, what did you name the Phantom Thieves like organization for their online thing? Okay, I would have gone with something more fun, but I wasn't sure how this worked in the game. Yeah. So I just kept the Phantoms. But I did test, and I wound up not having the guts to go through with it, but I wish I had just done it. If it would have fit, and I wrote Lotus Juice, <laughs> I, would, I wish I would have kept that and just had it be Lotus Juice. That would be really great, just because that, like, it pops up. It's always, whenever you press the main menu button, it is always, the name you picked is always there. Okay. I, I went with, and I, like, when I did the Japanese version, I went with, like, the Japanese sort of, like, the Phantom Hood, but in Japanese characters, I thought, like, that works. They're, like, Robin Hood characters. They're the Phantoms, the Phantom Hood. And, but the, with English now... I have named them Kaitodon, which is the Japanese phrase for phantom thieves. And so now, if, what's amazing about it is that sometimes in the dialogue, when, when a character like when Madarame was reading off the calling card and it gets to the, the bottom and the, the text is like, or like in English, the text would be like, oh, from the phantom thieves of the heart. In Japanese, it's Kokono no Kaitodan Yori. And so, but in the text, uh, in the text they put like whatever name you picked for your thing. So my name now fits the Japanese audio I'm hearing. Nice. I've sort of like weirdly retrofitted this thing so that it all works. I, I, I really wish I would have done Lotus Juice so it could just be on the card from Lotus Juice. Yes. Because <laughs> to my knowledge, he's not in this game. So. No, he's not. That, that, that's for the spinoffs because that's okay. the same thing Persona 4 did. He right. wasn't in the original Persona 4 soundtrack. And then when they made the anime, he was all over that thing. Yep. Oh man, we have so many years of Persona 5 spinoffs to look forward to now. Yes, I mean this thing game is selling extremely well. So. Oh, yeah. Anyway, um, yeah. So so we're laughing a lot. The beginning of Persona 5 is not funny. No, the beginning of Persona 5 is extremely dark. Like that's what we got to get into now because I tweeted out after like the first six seven hours. I think this game might be darker than Persona 3. Ultimately, I so far I actually would not say that because it kind of modulates past a certain sure, point yeah. and it, it evens itself out more. Whereas Persona Three sort of has a constant existential dread under the surface, but like it makes a fucking impression because the first thing you see, I mean, there's some fun of like the heist, but then it's the protagonist gets arrested, beat to a pulp, given some injection. I don't know yeah. what that is. The the like the cop that is arrested you basically threatens to kill you. Right. 
uh, and then you get interrogated, and then you go back, and it doesn't get any happier because your backstory is you just tried to step in and stop a woman from getting raped, yeah. and the dude was drunk, fell down, decided to sue you, you got put on probation. Yeah, because he's also like like famous or something right. for some reason that's not fully explained yet, but he has like... Influence on the police and stuff. So yeah. he sort of like maneuvered things behind the scenes to really fuck you over. Your parents kicked you the fuck out, I guess. Yeah. And you went and lived with this uh, family acquaintance, not really friend. He, he, like the line of dialogue he gives, and this is what I thought he said in Japanese, but for the longest time I didn't believe it and thought I misunderstood what he meant. But in English, this is like straight up what he says, is that... His, your parents are friends of one of his customers is the only justification he gives you at the beginning of this fucking game about why you're there, yeah. which is like the slimmest relationship any two human beings could possibly have from one another. You are the, the person who served coffee to someone who is a friend of my parents. I hope you're going to like, please take care of me. I'm going to live with you for, for a year. And he is a huge dick to you early on. Oh, yeah. You really get the impression he only took you in for, like, the money he's going to get. Yeah. You know, and you're living in a fucking attic. Yeah, that, and, that is like this trashed out attic in his cafe that he forces you yeah. to clean. Yeah. And then the, we jump into the first story arc of the game, which is this guy, Kamoshida, at the high school who harasses, abuses, and molests, we yeah. can also say, all of his students, male and female... And you have your two entry point characters are Ryuji, who had his fucking leg broken to the point where he can barely run anymore yeah. by this guy and his whole life ruined. And An, who's being sexually harassed day in and day out. And An's friend, who jumps off a fucking roof. And at that point, I was like, they went off their meds when they made this game. Because yeah. this is depressing as fuck. And then, like, beyond that, there is this just general sense of, like, especially because, you know, you are the transfer student to the school. And you have, and it's a like really prestigious academy in Shujin Academy. Which here's another like little like fun fact from the Japanese version. The word Shujin in Japanese, one of like one way you can write that word is for like the way, the way they use it for the the academy name. But another way is to mean prisoner, and that's that is the word that Justine and Caroline always refer to you as is Shujin. So there's a little there's a little bit of fun. Maybe it's maybe it's not so fun, but like like kind of like a knife in the ribs kind of wordplay right. about like yeah no like like if you're you being a student at this school is literally you are being you are imprisoned by the school because if you are expelled you're fucked for the rest of your life like especially in Japanese society right. if you are expelled from high school like you are never getting into a college if you're never getting into a college you are a reject from society and your life is over as a teenager like that's it's it's fucking done. So that's like the whole backstory, like the whole element of being in that school is that school does clearly does not want you there. They are very prestigious. They only accepted you because accepting this kid on probation is going to look good, like in their reputation. And so they, but your teacher, Kawakami Sensei, just seems like she doesn't want anything to do with you, hates your guts, just basically tells you, like, do not make any trouble. I don't want to have to deal with you. I've got so much on my plate, just fucking be cool. And you're not going to have any problem, but don't do anything. And then Kamashita spreads rumors about you, letting everyone else in the school know that you have a criminal record. Not specifying how you have that criminal record. So everyone in the school thinks that you fucking killed someone, or like definitely you hurt, like you assaulted someone, something. So everyone in the school thinks you're trash. It's like, your whole life is just ruined, and then the two friends you make, their lives are also ruined. And mostly by this one real asshole football, or uh, volleyball teacher. By the time you get... Into the palace, and you know your mission is to steal Kamoshida's heart. I have never been so ready to go after a villain in a video game. Yeah, 
ever. Like, they justify that so phenomenally. I was, like, chomping at the bit, like, let me into the castle. I want to fuck this dude up. Yeah. And, like, luckily, I actually, it's good the game gives you a little cooldown period of, like, learning the systems before you go in and do the mission. But it's like, man, like, the game is so dark early on that I honestly went through a period for a couple hours there where I was wondering, is this game too cynical? Because... And my answer ultimately is no. No, no. But, yeah, because I don't think it's actually a fundamentally cynical game. No, but it has to start from a very yes. dark place to get where it wants to go. Because Persona 3 and 4, I think, are very fundamentally non-cynical games. I think they're yeah. very optimistic about the human condition. And, and, and about, like, the power of human relationships is, like, the yes. core of what the whole franchise is about. Yes. Uh, but Persona 5 starts from a place of society is broken, people are awful, adults are awful... And kids are victims of society that they can never break out of. Like yeah. It starts from an extremely cynical place. And I think it, it quickly starts um, getting out of that, mainly through that same theme of relationships, but also that most of those adults that you meet early on who you think are kind of awful and irredeemable have other sides to them. Yeah. You know, like Shojiro... Sojiro. Sojiro. Um, you know, he obviously is... He warms up in a lot of different yeah. ways. And your teacher, Kawakami goes on a journey and I won't say anything else about that but you know th- th- these are not bad people fundamentally and that's one of the things I think you're learning is that for, like everyone is victimized by society to a certain extent and yes like, and, like, you know. and, and I think one of the master strokes of both of the, the arcs we're talking about today the Kamoshida arc and the, and the uh, Madarame arc yeah. is that those people are not excused for their actions and they're not redeemed but by the time their confession comes you see a level of humanity in them that I didn't believe the game was going to be able to come to at first based on how much they stack the deck against those characters. But, you know, Kamoshida, you never feel bad for him, I guess, but you also see humanity in him. You you understand how someone could get to that point. of yes. like, cause It is the whole structure of the, the sort of like the villain stuff in the game and mementos and all that is... Uh, in English, they call it, it's distorted. They use the word desire, right? It's like yeah. the distorted desires. In Japanese, it's Uganda, which means like distorted. But Yokubo is the word they use for desires, which is a much, I think, sort of in some ways broader and also more pointed sort of word that that is like it's not just desire. I think like maybe the best word to use it is like appetite. But like appetite in a way that is both literal and metaphorical. So it's like it's an appetite not just for food but for like fame, money, sex. And so it's like it's this extreme distorted sort of like perverted appetite for something. And you get you get this understanding of like Kamoshida probably was like an okay dude once. And you know he, he was he's – I mean he's an Olympic medalist for volleyball and that got to his head. And like his position as like this Olympic medalist at this prestigious academy is – Nobody can say no to him. And, like, you know, he, and he just, like, he's baby has, like, a little kernel of something in him that's, like, when nobody says no, he's pushing those limits. And he's pushing those limits until it gets to the point where he has, he, he's power tripping, basically, at that school. Which is something that, you know, I've never seen it anywhere near the extent of Kamoshida. But, like, I mean, you hear about stories about people like that. And you've, everyone's met someone that even on, like, a small level that has happened to, like, let power get to their head and think, like, I can just do with people what I want because they can't stop me. Oh, absolutely. The Kamoshida arc is so real it hurts. Yeah. I had a, I had a gym teacher in, in uh, elementary school who, uh, yeah, it, 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 um, not to that degree, but uh, abusive in a lot of ways. Sure, and, yeah. And there was a lot of that, that that hit really close to home. And knowing that, I mean, that, that woman, she, uh, I mean, she, she 
did her whole career and retired and never got anything for it, you know, and, and ran roughshod over that school. And that's what usually happens. And yeah. there is something so fundamentally cathartic about the way Persona 5 is set up to this fantasy of stealing someone's heart. But it's also, it's it's so not a violent act what they're doing in some ways because yeah. it's ultimately this trip of empathy. It's this journey to try to make someone see the side of themselves they've repressed and repressed under all these layers of these distorted appetites and desires. And... It's it's such a fascinating, I think, overall metaphor they're they're working with there with the you know take your heart yeah. is you know you're, you're early on you're worried you're going to make these people brain dead and you're not you're kind of like putting their humanity back in and it hurts them yeah because to ha- it's you're not taking their heart you're kind of putting it back in in a weird way um, and the way they can literalize all those themes through the palaces and you know like Kamoshida literally is the king in a castle. But he's also very pathetic in that way. Yeah. Madarame is kind of the same Yeah, because, way. like, his castle is this school. And it's like, yeah. what scale are you actually working on, asshole? Like, right. Yeah. Madarame lives in a shack, and he Well, no, Madarame does not yeah, live right. in a shack. He, he a forces museum. all of his students to live in a shack while he lives this, like, quote-unquote ascetic lifestyle when really he's, like, off shacking up with, like, his mistress yeah. in some, like, beautiful villa he owns with yeah. all the money he makes on his fucking stolen paintings and then forgeries that he sells and then forces all of his poor, dis- like, destitute students to work at this fucking shack to produce art for him that then he steals and then puts out in the world. Like, that's one of the things that's most amazing to me about the second story arc in this game is that... On the face of it, it's nowhere near as dark because it doesn't hit you as hard as the Kamashita stuff because the Kamashita stuff feels personal and right. I think, like everyone has heard stuff or like been close to stuff that has been something like that of someone who's who's been sexually harassed and stuff like that. Whereas like the Madarame stuff is doesn't hit you as hard because it's like it's forgery and stuff and it's like it's a little bit higher concept of what he's doing. But when you get down to like really what he's doing, he's actually like way worse. Like it's a totally fucked what he is doing and like how he just completely controls the lives of these people and like steals everything that they have accomplished for him and then throws them to the fucking curb when he can't use them anymore he's harder to excuse in some ways like you can trace the arc that would make a person like Kamoshida much easier than you can Madarame in part because part of the revelation is Madarame basically killed Yusuke's mother yeah so you know I mean it's also because Madarame is much older so he's like been in this he's he's picked that lifestyle decades ago as opposed to a few years ago with Kamoshida yeah, but there is like, when you get to those final scenes of both palaces and then the confessionals afterwards and the music that plays there and everything, it's it's powerful shit, man. You yeah. know? It is. And and it's it's often, it's not that you're necessarily sympathizing with the villains, but there is just this emotional release to it that's very powerful. Yeah. And, and I think there is a, in the game sort of like, is like builds on this thing at certain points of... I think there's a broader question to also be asked about, like, the nature of what the Phantom Thieves are doing to these people right. and, like, how right it actually is. And, like, 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 obviously, because it is, like, this weird sort of, like, philosophical, like, bullshit of, like, other world game fantasy thing that they're doing. So it's, like, it's not something you can do in the real world. But, like, when you really think about you're going into their subconscious and forcibly changing the way they think, like, there are consequences and ramifications to that. that I think, like the game starts sort of exploring around this point. Oh, it does. And, and I think the game, it tackles that head on and it doesn't pay lip service to it. It's yeah. like they actually have to think about it. And it's hard to say what they're doing is 100% wrong because they're saving a lot of, you know, if they, if you had the opportunity to do that to Kamoshida and you didn't, you'd be dooming a lot of innocent people to bad fates. Yeah. You know, and that doesn't necessarily make what you're doing to Kamoshida 100% right. But it also means the alternative might be really, really wrong. But it exists in those moral gray areas that are interesting and that the Persona games are very well equipped to explore. Yeah. So, yeah. 
Man, yeah. This is a hell of, There is a series of cutscenes. It kind of straddles the line between the second and third story arcs. But at the end of the Madarame stuff, like after he confesses, from that point, there's like a, a solid hour, hour and a half of events that play of like, Yusuke comes over to your house that one right, time yeah. and you have hot pot and you do some stuff together and then um, you know he gives you the Sayuri and then that kind of starts transitioning into the next story arc. Everything that happens in... That is where I fully fell for this game. Not like I wasn't before, but like where it really started hitting me just how monstrously good this game is, is the writing and the acting and the music and how all these themes were kind of coming together in the aftermath of those first two story arcs, which are very complementary to each other in a number of ways. It just, I realized like 30 hours is a lot for most games, but it's only, you know, like a third of this game. And that would actually be around like the 24 hour mark or something. And I was already just so attached to this world, so attached to these characters and so deeply wanting to know where they're going to go and and affected by the emotional connections going on and it just hit me like man this is this is something really special even for sure. even for persona this is something special yeah like it, it's it's a fascinating game and it, it you know it starts really strong and in my opinion it only gets better from there so i'm i'm so excited too yeah <laughs> And, you know, today we mostly talked about some of the mechanics and some of the basic stuff. We have so much more to dive into. We haven't talked about much of the music. There's yeah. more story points to talk about, social links to talk about. We will have time to do all of that. Yeah, yeah, I think we will reconvene here next week. There's more stuff to talk about, I think, with because uh, we're still kind of early on to talk about the full scope of what the game is doing with, like, the pacing of the different sort of... Uh, social stats you have in the social links because it's like yeah, yeah. next week we'll like you will be deep enough into that to sort of talk about the broader picture because there's a lot of stuff that's still going to open up for you in the game like there's a lot of new characters to get introduced to new dungeons to talk about new nice. music to talk about i'm 30 hours into this and have not met all the characters on the cover so <laughs> no like go. not even really close i think you're what you're like halfway there basically so yeah. a little over halfway yep to all, all just, right. to just all the characters all right so next week more Persona 5, Doctor Who comes back, and uh, we potentially just lose our shit over all of this. Yeah, maybe the, the next week might be a two-week, two or two-podcast two week. We don't, yeah. we don't know. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of podcasts in the future. So, uh, yeah, if you somehow listen to all of that and haven't gotten Persona 5, get it. Yeah, get it. Obviously. Play it. Live it. Love, love it. it. Make the shine for yourself. We'll reconvene next week. Uh, appreciate the base. Yes, always be appreciating the base.